Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, welcome to a new winter, Colts and Culture. And today I'm here with my ever-present <laughs> buddy, Dan. Hello, how you doing? Yeah, good. How, how about you? Um, good, I've been enjoying like pouring over my old Nirvana books. Um, the same ones that I had back in the 90s, mm-hmm. that I used to look at all the time. And um, yeah, giving Bleach another listen. Are you ready to bleach your bumhole? I don't know if I'm ready to go that far. Because <laughs> that's what Kurt named <laughs> yeah, after. That's the first, first fact. Um, no, today we're going to be talking about uh, Nirvana's first album, Bleach, which was released 30 years ago this year, this July, in fact. Was it July the 15th, I believe? Um, was the actual original uh, release date? Um and yeah, so we're going to be taking a bit of a deep dive on the tracks, the history of it, um, the impact that it had, obviously what happened afterwards, um, but only uh, just like a, a little bit of a top line um, about uh, Nirvana generally, because we're just going to be dedicating this and focusing this episode purely on Bleach. Because we could easily go down a rabbit hole, couldn't we? Yes. We're and big, big have fans. a kiss and come back out yeah. and, and covered in bleach. Um, yeah, we're big Nirvana fans. Uh, always have been. And um, yeah, I, I always think that bleach, uh, even though it's considered um, probably like their worst 
studio album, maybe mm. in the grand scheme of things. It's still a very impressive um, uh, album of songs, I think, and some songs more than others. Um, and I think it's still, you know, hold strong today even when you listen to it today uh let alone back in 1989 would you agree yeah yeah and i think when i was like really getting into nirvana and you know all excited and we were like, making mixtapes compilations and things i didn't really i wasn't so um like focused on what songs from what album and uh, you know in the way that I probably am now and i just considered it all part of the body of, of work Mm-hmm. see what i mean now looking back on it yeah it is pro- you know i think it is the weakest album um but yeah it's a really good record and obviously it was one of the ones where for me it was the first nirvana cd i had actually it was the first cd i ever bought was it which, really um yeah which suggests a level of credibility that wasn't actually there because <laughs> obviously before that i had bought cassette albums including uh, now that's what I call music 1994 mm-hmm. um, I think Dance Nation uh, also 94 um, I think I had Let's Get Ready to Rumble um, <laughs> by PJ Duncan, PJ and Duncan aka <clears throat> on uh, on cassette as a and as Jane. a cast single yeah um, but this is the first time I think because I think at the time it was like available as one of those like mid price CDs right. So I was like six ninety nine. That's the one for me. <laughs> yeah, that'll do. Um, yeah, I remember. I don't know. I can't remember the first CD I bought, but I remember um, in Sutton Library, which is near where mm. we grew up. Um, and what you, what you used to do in this library was you'd pick an album and you go, "Can I listen to this, please?" And they put it on. They give you some headphones and you just sit there in the library and listen to it. Um, which is weird when you think about it. Like listening like looking back on that but basically um they had a little bit downstairs in the main bit of Sutton Library which is still there right it's still there must be I'll be honest I don't remember that experience I always had to hire oh, really? them and take them home but it sounds well, like you, you had a special just... relationship with the uh... <laughs> librarians <laughs> no I swear you could uh <laughs> right T- uh, touching just... on Floyd the Barber themes here <laughs> Already. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there was basically they had the little bit um, in the main foyer. Let's say multimedia the station. Very, very late nineties. <laughs> was yeah. it? Yeah. Right. But what I was going to say is they had um, they would sell off the old CDs, which had basically been run to ruin. And um, I remember my mum came back and she was like, "I've bought you all these Nirvana CDs because you like Nirvana." Wow. And it was it was literally Bleach, Nevermind, and In Utero. And I think that was it. It was just them three. Um, but I think they had multiple Bleach ones there, if I remember right. But she picked up the one that was less scratched, but it was still scratched to fuck. <laughs> so a lot of it would skip, and it had all, like, the... And I've probably got it still somewhere. It had all, like, the stickers, and on the front it was all, like, tatty, you know, where people, like, pulled the sleeve in and out of the cd and all this stuff like a hundred million times um and that that was my first edition of bleach i bought and i should really dig it out because it's probably um you know who knows what kind of issue it was if it was you know one of my, like the first run or something like that because well i can been... remember your copy looking different to mine so right. mine was a was a geffen um release right but i'm pretty sure yours was a like an earlier one so probably um on tupelo 
And yes, that's right. It was. Yeah, you're right. It, yeah. So it's probably quite quite cool. I do remember yours being distinctly different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I remember, like, because, like, looking at the photo and listening to it, and I remember thinking it was really weird. And it is really weird <laughs> like, when you think about the actual songs themselves and what he's singing about. It doesn't, you know, if you know Nirvana from their hits, let's say, then you listen to this album, you're probably like, what the hell mm. is going on here with a lot of the tracks? Um, and, yeah, but I'd already heard, like, uh, I'd had it on tape or whatever and stuff before, but that was the first time I had, like, the actual uh, CD, I think. But, yeah, we used to do, like, a lot of, like, mixtapes and and this is back in the day when you'd swap tapes with your mates and all this stuff, and you and me would do a lot of that anyway. Um, yeah, but... Uh, we also used to um, test out some of the material. I dug out an old tape recently. Oh, God. <laughs> of you and me and we're just singing songs and probably about half of Bleach is on there really? Um, what do you mean we're just singing songs? Yeah, you're playing guitar oh, okay, and we're, right. just, we're just singing and there's, there's a bit of Casio <laughs> keyboard <songs>. in there <laughs> Jesus Christ what, so- what songs are they? do you remember? Um, there's definitely some sifting yeah um, about a girl Quite a mm-hmm. nice uh, version. Um, trying to remember what else. Because I think I like. Oh, this is so typical me. Something like I bought the guitar tab book from Virgin Megastore in Sutton, photocopied it, or got my dad to photocopy it, and then took it back. <laughs> <laughs> took it back because I remember they were like. Uh, I mean, I don't know how much they cost, yeah. but I remember thinking at the time, this is it, like, expensive for what it is, and obviously it's just like pre-internet or internet was very young so it didn't just you could just get all this or whatever i don't know i can't remember but i remember i did print off tabs as well at some point but it was the very early days of the internet so obviously like the go-to would just to be get the get the guitar tab book just get it all from that but because you amassed quite a repertoire quite quickly (laughs) we've also because we've also got like we're doing even in his youth um okay stain Really? Bilisan. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, maybe listeners man. would enjoy to hear some uh, snippets of those sessions interspersed throughout this show, or maybe not. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, what we'll do is at the end of the show, as a little treat, maybe we'll put, <laughs> we'll put a few up and you don't have to listen to them then. <laughs> you can <laughs> maybe, if you really want to listen to them, you can listen to the end of the show then and then, you know, you're not going anywhere. We've got you. Um, otherwise if you don't want to listen to them then you don't have to um, yeah so I think it's safe to say that Nirvana for, well for me personally were probably the most influential band uh, for me personally um, and yeah and that's why something like Bleach is you know very close to my heart anyway likewise <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, that was the band that really I got excited about and got into music with that, with, with Nirvana and um, just that excitement of like having a band that's your band that you really dig into and um, I remember all the excitement of trying to track down all the bootlegs and things once we found out what bootlegs were and mm. um, digging out every scrap and even now, like if they're a band that then... 
maybe I, I went away from for a few years, came back, and I was like, this is just as good as I remembered it. Yeah. And, and even now, you know, just last year, we added school into our hmm. uh, band set list. Um, yeah. So, yeah, still there in my heart. Yeah, it's true. Um, so, yeah, so it's a very personal uh, album for us, and uh, therefore this is a very personal episode of the show um so why you know what what is it what what's going on <laughs> so it was <laughs> it's a cd <laughs> it's an album it's a collection of songs um it was released on sub pop who they had kind of signed for if you can um when you hear the stories about what that contract actually was but um and it was the whole first wave of of grunge and essentially that sub pop seattle sound um and yeah it's still very raw and i believe like kurt said that he felt like it was an album um that he felt like he had to write to make sub pop happy which means Mm -hmm. that's why it's a little bit more metal and a little bit dirtier than he probably says anyway that he would have wanted to um to write otherwise um and yeah, when you think about what was being released in 1989, this kind of does, I can imagine this could cut through quite easily. And this whole sound, this whole genre that's, you know, that was starting to swell that Nirvana ended up leading. Um, you know, this is really the, the roots of it right here in this album. And yeah, so Dan, um, mm. I know it was uh, kind of the stages of what went into um, producing the album because there's some from old demos and uh different drummers and things like that um so yeah why don't you uh, talk to us a little bit about you know how the album even came about sure yeah so there's a few key sessions um that fed into the final product i think you have to start with um january 23rd 1988 the band go into reciprocal recording so that was a studio um run by jack and dino Mm -hmm. Um, who was a a name in the scene. Kurt always says that he only picked the studio because it was the cheapest. Um, But some people think, you know, that was a bit of a a put-on. You know, Kurt's always building this, like, punk uh, ethos myth. Um, Actually, it might be that it was just... He'd seen the the studio uh, listed on, I believe it was um, Soundgarden uh, album that had come out recently. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it was the like known hub basically for the for the scene at that time, and basically just booked a session. So he went in with um, Chris, and Dale Crover of the Melvins was on drums, and basically in one day, I think a five hour session, they laid down a whole uh, demo tape, which is popularly known as the Dale demo. Right. Um, so that was If You Must, Downer, Floyd the Barber, Paper Cuts, Spank Through, Hairspray Queen, Mm -hmm. Aerozeppelin, Beeswax, Mexican Seafood, and Pen Cap Chew. And a lot of these, they're they're like, you can find them on the, um, well, I believe anyway, on the Nirvana box set that came out, right, that was that had pretty much almost everything they'd ever laid down. Um, it had a few other bits that hadn't been released. So of those songs, Downer, Floyd the Barber, um, and Paper Cuts, 
all end up on Bleach. Yeah. Um, Hairspray Queen, Aero Zeppelin, Beeswax, and Mexican Seafood um, all end up on Incesticide. Yeah. And so that just leaves, yeah, If You Must and Pen Cap 2 finally were released on uh, With the Lights Out box right. set. So that's the only two. Well, the only thing that hasn't been released is Spank Through from that session. Because right. the version that ends up getting released is from the next session. Um, but basically, yeah, so after this like, quick five-hour thing, and Jack and Dino's always like, oh, I only had an hour to mix it. Um, and he's always complaining, because he's like, oh, those mixes ended up on Incesticide, and I'd love it if they'd come to me and asked me to remix them. Mm. Um, but that tape got passed around, and that eventually made its way to Sub Pop, and that's yeah. how they end up getting... Uh, approached and signed for one single. Mm-hmm. So then, between June and September 1988, they're back at Reciprocal with Jack, and they're recording the uh, Love Buzz single. Yeah. Um, initially, apparently, this is where it's funny. This is where you start to see already. There's some uh, friction between Kurt and. Uh, and the label, because immediately they want him to do Love Bars as the single, and he's yeah. pushing to do a cut original. Um, and yeah, he, he didn't relates. want to do a, a cover. That's a, it's a, for people who don't know. It's a shocking blues song, um, and yeah, it's good. It's obviously a great song, but yeah, I heard that as well. That Kurt was very unhappy that the first single they were going to release was a cover. Yeah, I can see why. Um, I can kind of see it from both sides though, because. You know, it's a great track, um, I suppose, as a hook for people to get into the band. It's probably quite a good way to go. Yeah, I mean, apparently it was because um, whoever from Sub Pop uh, saw them, was brought to see them live or whatever, and when they started playing Love Buzz, he was like, like classic, like, that's it, yeah. that's the <laughs> single, that's what I'm going to release, I love it. Uh, um, and yeah, that was it. <laughs> So um, so they went in and they recorded Love Buzz um, and Big Cheese, which became the B-side. Mm-hmm. Um, they also did Blandest, yeah. which was going to be the B-side, but they decided it was a bit weak. Um, and what else did they do? Spank Through, again. And that's the version that ended up being released on the seminal uh, sub-pop compilation um, that was part of then this swell of kind of um, sub pop putting their whole scene on the map, right? Um, and is that the version that Jack and Dino apparently sings on? He is, yeah. He's on backing vocals. Yeah, I just um, read that. <laughs> they all I say. I just read that and was like. I never knew that. I need to say it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think what those backing vocals are, though. Yeah, I can't Uh, remember. I wouldn't even know what it was, yeah. um, They tried out a few other songs during this session. Um, So I don't know to what state these were finished. um, Because they had a habit, and they continued this throughout the Bleach um, sessions, of just trying to maximise, basically, the the tape. Because everything's been done on on a budget. So if they did a take of something, didn't like it, they'd just record over it. Yeah. Um, but they had a crack at Mr. Mustache, Blue, and Sifting as well. 
during this session. Um, it's worth saying as well, at this point, you've got Chad in the band. Right. So Chad Channing has joined on drums because Dale Crover was only ever sort of a, a temporary stand-in. Yeah. Um, and that's the real, for me, that's like the real first solid permanent Nirvana lineup. Mm. Kurt, Chris and Chad. Yeah. It's true, yeah. It's also weird how, like, um, it, I always thought, generally speaking, uh, until actually looking into um, the recording of this properly, yeah. I always just kind of assumed it was just like, and the way that you might see, like, um, a documentary on Nirvana, whatever would kind of do it, but it's like they walk into the, you know, the studio and they pay $600 or whatever and they're like, oh, and then we cut an album in a really short space of time when there's the the fact that they did these demos and things like that prove that it was, you know, they they had still taken their time a bit and tried to um, develop, you know, their studio sound or whatever coming up, walking into Bleach. It wasn't just a case of, like, slapping some money on a desk and going, yeah. Yeah, but, all right, we want five hours. We're going to, let's go and do it. Um, which... I kind of had a vague idea of maybe what had happened uh, before actually, you know, researching this episode properly. That's it. You've got this slow build. And, and also what you've got, I think, um, as a big difference between the Dale demo and this session for the Love Buzz um, is definitely a, di- a different crop of material. Um, and I wouldn't say a progression either. For me, I think things have regressed a bit. Um, I really, really love the Dale demo stuff yeah. and all that weird stuff that ends up on Incesticide, Beeswax, um, Hairspray Queen, strange songs with and, and really weird lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're a bit more influenced by kind of like Kurt's weirder side. Yeah. Um, and stuff, you know, like I can hear bits of Butthole Surfers and Scratch Acid in those songs. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think already going into this Love Buzz session, and Kurt said it, you know, he felt, and you said at the beginning of the show, he felt he had to deliver an album that Sub Pop expected and that would, I think, meet the expectations of his new peers in Seattle. Yeah. It's true. So those kind of like weirder angles are being shorn off, and instead you're getting, you know, slightly, I think, more conventional. And, and heavier, crunchier songs like Blue. Yeah. Yeah, and that's and they're a bit more, you know, commercially friendly, I guess. More sellable, um, rather than the, the more weirder stuff and all the riffs and stuff. And I, I believe, um, yeah, you'll probably, like, get into this, but, like, they wanted to... They recorded Big Long Now. Uh, did they record Big Long Now, or they wanted to put it on or something like that, but decided it was just... It's too much slow, yeah, slow songs, uh, which is kind of true when you look back at it. And we'll go into this properly later, but it does. There's a real like metal kind of sound still to it that's still heavily set, like in the eighties. Um, whereas that weirder stuff, as you said, is a bit more interesting and a bit more of an evolution of the sound. So yeah, I can see why you might think it's a bit more of a regression um, as such. Yeah, it's a step away from, I think, kind of like post-punk kind of artsy weirdness. And and and, and he's very much in step with the scene. That's the thing. He's, he's trying to please the label, and the label's kind of feeding the, the scene. And 
Um, it's very much, you know, it, which is a scene that's very much like the, the taste of it is set by, you know, bands like um, Green River, Mudhoney, Soundgarden have just become really successful or relatively successful. Um, and I've seen people say, I think I think Everett True maybe I might be pinching this from, right. who wrote that really important article um, about the scene that kind of kicked it off. Yeah. Um, where basically you've got these guys and they're at a certain age where the stuff that they liked when they were little kids is kind of stuff that they're a bit embarrassed of maybe now which is like 70s hard rock essentially yeah and they've grown up with some like like hardcore punk and some weirder stuff but they've got to that age now where they're kind of like well actually I feel confident enough to say I remember and I liked that old stuff and so you're starting to get and this is what grunge kind of was um it's combining that like punk maybe like ethos and attitude Mm -hmm. with some of the heavier slower sounds of like yeah 70s rock so you know that's why you've got like Black Sabbath Kiss um even stuff like I think Kirk Cobain's first gig was Sammy Hagar Right. You've got that kind of sound mixing with, yeah, like some, um, like Black Flag and other, um, yeah, like hardcore punk bands. And yeah. that whole sound then, that's, that's, and that is what you get here. And that is what Jack and Dino, the producer, was so good at. And, um, I mean, that is the sound of Bleach, I think. Yeah. It's true. So, yeah, um, so you've, have you brought us up now to the actual Bleach recording sesh? Yeah, so let's see. The dates for that were... Uh, uh, basically as well, Sub Pop now at this point, um, Love Buzz has been a success. I mean, there was only a thousand copies made, so it wasn't going to never be a success. It was the first um, issue in the Sub Pop singles series. Mm-hmm. Um they suggest that Nirvana, yeah, they want to do an EP, but they push for a, an album. So basically, when they turn up to do the recording, they're paying for it anyway. So they're like, let's just record an album. Yeah. Um, December 24th, Christmas Eve, uh, 1988, they go in. And apparently, Kurt is up most of that night finishing off all the lyrics. Yeah. Essentially writing right them from scratch. Um, yeah, apparently he was writing them very like pissed off and yeah. angry about the whole thing. And I, I kind of, I'm a little bit like, yeah, take it with a pinch of salt. Like, mm. you know, and he's, he's always like a bit dismissive about his lyrics and all this stuff anyway, when you read interviews about it. But, um, there's some stuff in there where I'm like, that's either something that you've been working on for a while or that's brewing or that, you know, we know from like the journals and stuff, he was always knocking, lines and bits and pieces together or whatever so um yeah i i imagine it might be like a last minute maybe you know putting together of some stuff or like filling in gaps or whatever and things like that yeah but i find it a little hard to believe that he wrote all the lyrics to all the songs (laughs) like the day before he went into the studio but maybe i'm wrong i don't know i just always think there's an element where people like you know they say stuff like that or they play up to the legend or you don't know the you know what I mean? It's like yeah. creating a story for themselves almost. And it's hard to tell with Kirk Cobain, isn't it? Because he plays yeah, so around with that all the time. Piss. Yeah. 
Um, anyway, yeah, so the session dates, um, December 24th and then the 29th to the 31st of December. And then they came back in January for two more days. Um, and in that time, I mean, they basically do what kind of ends up on the album. They have a go at... Um, Floyd Barber, they have a go at Hairspray Queen mm-hmm. um, and Paper Cuts, I think. But they're dissatisfied. Jack and Dino says whenever they try and do any of the um, the Dale stuff, they just end up thinking it sounds worse. Yeah. Um, so that all gets kind of jettisoned. Um, Poor old Chad, let's be honest. Yeah. It's a rough ride. He does, and Kurt's really critical of him. Yeah. And he kind of says weird little backhanded things like, oh, he was more of a jazz drummer. Um, <laughs> and he says stuff like, oh, I was really unhappy with like Love Buzz and it always just sounded so weak and thin. And there's always a sort of implication that it's the drums. Yeah. I mean, th- I think uh, I recently watched um, a recent interview with Chad Channing and he was saying how, and there's a little bit, apparently he, he used to do this with Dave Grohl a little bit as well, but it sounds like he was doing it all the time with Chad, where he'd just be like, right, I need you to go like, do, do, da, da, do, do, da, whatever, because, you know, Kurt used to drum a bit himself or whatever. Um, and it, yeah, and it sounds as if like <laughs> Kurt really did like put him through the ringer. Um, <laughs> but he really liked his um, drum kit as well. It was a pair of like North... The yes. North drums, or whatever, that North were like drums. a bit, yeah, was shaped a bit weirdly and it gave like a really weird sound. And I felt like Kurt was more in love with the kit <laughs> than, the, than the person who came, who came oh. with it. Poor old Chad. Poor guy. Anyway, he says he didn't feel like, you know, Kurt and Chris were obviously the, the central unit. He, he was just yeah. kind of like there along for the ride for a while. Yeah. Did I show <laughs> you the, because um, I think this is part of the what this, this thing I was watching. He's in a Chad's in a Nirvana tribute band. Do you know this? Oh yeah. Um, I think we were watching some of it, and to be fair, they weren't like that bad. Like they were proper like cheesy, like ugh, like skin crawlingly. We're rockers or whatever. And seeing Chad, who's still got his long black hair, but he's obviously like a million years old now, and um, working away, but he can't quite keep time with his own <laughs> songs. <laughs> and you're just a bit uh, like, oh, poor Chad. Just even now, he can't. He's in a tribute band to his own band that he was in. And he's the um, weak link. Yeah, and he's still the weak link, yeah. Uh, uh, poor guy. Poor um, one thing that I mentioned there was that they were, you know, this is all on the band's dime. Um, right. Famously, the album supposedly cost $606.17 to record. Um, and all that money was put up by Jason Everman. So apparently he was introduced to the band by Dylan Carlson, um, who is a f- good friend of Kurt's. People will yeah. recognise that name because of his band um, Earth, but also mm-hmm. more notoriously he was the man who supplied the gun that Kurt used to kill himself with. Yeah, um, so they were still good friends for a, for a while. Yeah, it's funny actually because Kurt kind of like cycles through friends, doesn't he, over the course of like Nirvana. Um, mm. But Dylan Carlson seemed to be there the whole along for the whole ride, really. All the time. Um, but apparently, also Jason Everman was a friend of Chad Channing's, and um, but they hadn't. I think they only realised after he'd been introduced. 
mm-hmm. and basically I think Jason Everman just liked the idea of being involved in Banging the band. The band. Yeah. Well, he put up the money. He didn't. He wasn't. It wasn't like here's the money if you <laughs> can let me be the guitarist. I think he just said here's the money, and um, and then I think they were, the band were looking for another guitarist anyway at that point. I think yeah. Kurt wanted another one, so he was just like, look, he plays guitar, let's get him. He's got the long hair that's sub-pop love. Yeah. Um, but obviously that turned out to be a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a mistake. Yeah. Well, he, yeah. What, what would you mean, a mistake in what way? Well, once they, you know, once he was in the band and they started touring, he was more of that kind of, like, you know, the rock, oh, right, rock yeah. side. It was all like... Um, I got the, um, Kurt saying stuff like, "Oh, the way he used to like preen about on stage and pose and shake his hair was really disgusting." Yeah, he's <laughs> completely against like the, it's the antithesis of what Kurt wanted, you know, this band to be about. He wasn't punk rock, basically. Yeah, he exactly. was still stuck in, stuck in the eighties. There's some, some story where someone said, "Oh, yeah, like they thought he, he was into punk," and Jason said, "Yeah, I like punk." And, Eventually, at some point, they actually went and flipped through his record collection, and they were horrified to find it was just full of speed metal. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Poor guy. (laughs) Um, So, anyway, but yeah, he paid for the the record, and um, you know they put him on the back, so he's listed as a performer. Yeah, but he didn't do anything. Did not do jack. He's on the cover as well, we should say, yeah. um, of, the, of the album. Uh, but yeah, again, no, that's it. <laughs> he paid for it. He's on the cover. He's on the back. But he didn't actually do anything. Um, so that's kind of, that, that's it really. Those those are the sessions. Um, trying to think if there's anything else really important or uh, pertinent. Um. No, not really. I think it's quite um it's quite interesting. I was going to talk about their equipment a little bit before we go into the into the song um into the songs themselves. Mm. Um because yeah, a lot of people think oh what was the bleach sound and you know how did what was Kurt using for instance and been able to kind of dig up a little bit about that. Um and I'll kind of talk about Kurt's sound uh you know generally what the what the grunge sound really was um i mean kurt um so, so for recording bleach he used uh the studio so jack and dino's um fender twin reverb amp and uh he used a boss uh ds1 distortion which was his favorite i believe um distortion pedal and that he used constantly um you know right up until the end and it's a very cheap pedal, to be honest. I've got one. Um, and I used one a lot, and it's actually I've got to fix it actually because it's all doesn't actually work anymore. But they've, you know, you can get them for like twenty quid, I think, off eBay or whatever if you really want one. Um, and yeah, it's it's got. A, he loved like boss pedals generally, um, apparently, and that's um, the kind of how he got that kind of distorted. Uh, sound was apparently using that. I don't know mm. if he used, did use any other pedals. Some people say um, he was using delays and reverbs and all this stuff, but it sounds as if um, a lot of it was just running through this <laughs> distortion pedal and the rest was you know, through the amp. But I could be wrong. Um, in terms of guitar, apparently he used a Univox High Flyer. They are 
super cheap guitars um and he used them quite frequently actually throughout the course um of uh, nirvana and you can actually see one for instance on the heart shaped box video um you know where they're uh, where they're playing he's got a white one in that one and he used like um he used to use like a, a jaguar as kind of his main guitar which is usually seen with um he did use a lot of variety of uh, guitars he was smashing them a lot as well keep mm. in mind um and he also you know this isn't really relevant for this but um he designed the jagstang half jaguar half mustang which is the guitar that i use um today and i've used it um for a while and it's a bit of a nightmare <laughs> but i've actually had it i've taken all like uh um uh, some of the factory stuff out and replaced it with Kurt's setup as much as I could. Um, so, and not the, <laughs> I mean, there's an element where it's like, why even bother? It's not like, I don't want to copy his exact sound, but it was like, well, it's not me trying to copy the Nirvana sound. It's more like, well, this was, I've got this guitar. This is what he did to the guitar to make it sound better in his eyes. So I'm just going to do the same because no one else really uses that guitar. I think Billy Joe from Green Day, I think used it for a while. Um, whatever. Anyway, that's boring. But yeah, for the bleach, he used a um, Unifox high flyer. Um, and yeah, that's kind of it. That's all I've got about, um, the equipment that was really used. I imagine a lot of it was just using whatever was there. Um, yeah. on the day. Yeah. But that was probably, you know, was it, they wanted that sound. So they just used all the mics and stuff that were there. Cause mm. that's what all the other Seattle bands were, were using. Yeah. So what was the, um, so before we go into the, uh, um, uh, song by song approach mm. to it, um, what was the uh, original track list then that was submitted to Sub Pop? Yeah. So this is something new. I hadn't heard this before. I thought this was quite interesting. Um, so originally side A was going to open with Floyd the Barber. Mm-hmm. Um, then Mr. Moustache School Scoff and Sifting Okay Side uh, B uh, yeah. <laughs> Side B would have been Love Buzz Swap mm-hmm. Meat Paper Cuts Negative Creep About a Girl and Blue Right uh, That's Initial Thoughts um, yeah, I can kind of see it working. Uh, I can, I can kind of see it working. It's an, I think that's quite an interesting, um, lineup, interesting way of playing it. Yeah. Well, I put it into my um, computer the other day and listened to it like this and I, I really enjoyed it. It's really good. Yeah. I think looking at it now, cause I've got it on paper here and looking at what was released, I think they really front-loaded the album. Yeah. Because um, when you look at, and again, you know, p- people are probably thinking like they're familiar with the track list from the CD or from Spotify mm. or whatever. <laughs> but if you think about it in terms of a an LP with two sides, um, side B on paper, actually, it looks quite weak. Yeah. Um, and especially without the the two bonus tracks that, again, people probably think of as part of the album, which are... Um, Big Cheese and um, Downer. Yeah. 
Um, you've actually got like a that side B. It's quite insubstantial, and it ends on sifting, which is quite a strange way to end the yeah, album. It's a really I think weird way, really weird way to end it. And I kind of understand ending on blue because um, uh, that was how they ended a lot of their sets live as well. Um, it was with blue, I believe. Yeah, so that kind of makes sense. That's the thing that sticks out most to me because I can imagine Kurt thinking, "Yeah, end on blue." And it's weird in a way. So, the, you know, they submitted that and um, it was rejected, essentially. Um, mm. And Bruce Pavitt said and he ordered that the album was resequenced. Um, and apparently that's part of the reason for the delay in releasing it. Because obviously all this was done by January 1989. Yeah. And the album doesn't come out for like another, what, six, seven months? Um, yeah. And also, I think there were problems there with. Um, cash flow in the early days of sub pop apparently yeah. at one point they even asked nirvana for some money i think to get some copies printed oh really and they were Jesus like Christ. no we'll take the tapes elsewhere <laughs> <laughs> and they were like oh we've suddenly got the money thanks uh we'll, we'll get that record out for you jesus christ but um yeah i just thought it was interesting and uh, if people are listening they might want to give that a go get yeah. up and kind of uh get the band's original vision for for the flow of the album yeah i might do that myself actually so um i think maybe if we get into the nitty-gritty now of the album itself um and i have included big cheese and downer on this as well because that's kind of how i think about the album yeah um so yeah so we'll go through it track by track um I'm going to kind of tell you what I think is happening musically and we're going to talk about it lyrically as well. Um, but I think overall with all these songs, uh, whereas where we did something like the horrors or primary colors, um, each song was kind of unique and not to say these songs aren't unique or anything like that, but they've got, it's a very same kind of sound. <laughs> let's yeah. say. So this, uh, so don't worry, this won't be as, um, as detailed maybe as the previous ones if you you know if you're worried about how long <laughs> we're going to be going into the intricacies of each of the songs um so yeah so blue starts off with blue and that's spelled b-l-e-w by the way <laughs> not the not the band you know dabba dee dabba dow eiffel <laughs> 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 <Michael> 65 <laughs> uh. That wasn't this. So let's have a listen to Blue. So yeah, it starts with a very heavy, deep bass. And I think what had happened um, is that it had got, they'd basically, Chris had um, detuned his bass, not realising that he had already detuned it to D. So he'd actually done it to a drop C tuning. Um, and yeah, like a drop D tuning is used a lot in uh, you know, metal songs and things like that. Um, because it means you could just place your one finger along the fretboard rather than doing what would normally be a, a normal chord. Um, and it gives it a much more metal uh, kind of sound. 
so yeah he'd done that but he dropped it to a c so it's super super deep and i think they recorded a few songs like this actually um apparently but blue was the only one that actually actually made it um and uh yeah so it's it's very simple the guitar actually follows the bass and the vocal melody for the most part it's quite dirty it's a bit it's a little bit um a little bit flat uh to be honest um but then you know it's it's got some high-pitched backing vocals and i don't know who did those um kurt maybe yeah Um, i think so and I feel it's rare for Kurt's vocal and guitar to be doing the same thing at once after this album, but it happens quite a few times mm. during Bleach. Um, it's got quite a, uh, it's got a solo, which again happens a lot during this album. It's quite a metal kind of sounding, quite rocky solo. Um, and yeah, it, it's here that you can really hear that grit in his voice and he unleashes that scream that, um, you know, that makes his voice uniquely Kurt Cobain's and uh it's got a you know great great ending you know you could do anything and it's a good opener um so you can tell it's going to be kind of like a rocking album as such so I mean music wise Dan what do you think about um Blue um I'm not as enthusiastic about it as you are it's always oh, really? been one of my least favorite songs on the album um, seeing this alternative track listing has been quite eye-opening as well because I wonder what did Sub Pop see in this song that they thought that should be at the start of the album and also they selected it then as as the single to release um, to me yeah. you know it's quite a, it's quite a fairly slow mid mid-paced kind of song um, like you said with the vocal um, melody following the guitar it's kind of not that it's not that interesting um yeah the hook at the end i agree that's probably like the best bit the um you could be anything you could do anything mm. um it's uh yeah it's, it, it's a bit flat but again i mean that's that's the problem with a lot of the, the recordings i think um, yeah what do you think it's about lyrically yeah um yeah I mean, I, he's, he always seems to be, um, a bit obsessed with, with bodily fluids and, uh, the human body generally, um, which obviously comes through a lot more in, in utero. Um, and he's very open about that and how fascinating he finds biology in general. And the line of, you know, is there another reason for your stain? Mm. <laughs> always, always does make me laugh. Yeah. That's, um, that's a good line. That's one of my favorites yeah. actually. It's a good one. And it's all, it's all very negative, you know, elsewhere. The idea of like, I kind of get the feeling it's the idea of asking permission that there's a certain subservience here that comes with a feeling like, you know, like you're a loser. Like if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to lose. It's almost like this kind of acceptance. Um, but at the same time, it's quite funny. Like here is another word that rhymes with shame. It's a funny lyric. Cause in like, yeah. I don't know, like, uh, I can't be bothered to write anymore. It's just something. Um, but yeah, yeah, it still ends on a bit of a high note. Like, you, you know, as I was saying, like you could do anything. Like if he could just break free from whatever's oppressing him, the world could be his oyster. Um, so yeah, I quite like the idea of that lyrically as an opener. Yeah. I like the song. I know, yeah, yeah, by the sounds of it, yeah, you're not too into it. But um, I actually think it's quite a cool... It's it's just kind of that bass just kind of brings you well me personally 
brings me in straight away. That and grumble. Nothing, yeah, and it's nothing that's too... It doesn't get you back up like some of the other songs might do. If that's your, you know, your album opener, um, be like, what the hell is this? This is quite a, a easy to groove to kind of tune. But yeah, I get what you're saying. It's like not, um, it's not crazy. Yeah. As you said, it's a bit weird to release it as a single maybe because it's still a little bit like bleh, but, um, I do like it. And for me, it does ease me into like the rest of the songs that are on the album. What, what what are you thinking lyrically? Or um, no, I think, I think yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, I think some people say that bit at the end, you, you could do anything, be anything. You don't do anything. Um, could be okay. like self, you know, it's not necessarily optimistic. It's like self-effacing and it could be like the what Kurt is imagining some of the um, people in his life are, and probably were saying to him at that point, yeah. like if you tried, but you don't, you don't try, and you're just a slacker and a dropout. Right. Um, and a lot of this, again, that is touching on a lot of the lyrical themes that you get in songs of this era and going forward, which are about you know, angst, um, mm-hmm. but also, like you say, this kind of like self-deprecating, trying to own that feeling. Yeah. Um, the stain. <laughs> Does that suggest the blue? Because blue is a strange title, right? Is that, is that blue you like? resonant <laughs> of a uh, blowjob? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I hadn't actually thought about that. It's possible. It was only the other day, not to jump ahead, but like when I was thinking about swap meet, yeah, and I was thinking, oh, maybe like Emmy eighty. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. Jack and Dino said that that's how it was originally um, spelled on the um, oh, really? session tapes. Yeah. See, it's like we're in tune. <laughs> <laughs> me and Kurt are in tune for Beyond the Grave. Um, but that yeah, is the it, kind it just of occurred to me. That's the kind of wordplay that would appeal to Kurt Cobain, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it does feel like that, especially because it's all about like a couple or whatever doing the selling their bits and pieces. But yeah, we'll get onto that. Um, sorry. Uh, yeah. So not for you, it's not the best opener. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, you know, I always liked it enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, so the next song is Floyd the Barber. Now this is the first song that I learned, um, on the drums as well, believe it or not. So let's check out, uh, Floyd the Barber. how evil this sounds his vocals are kind of very much of this era i think it's like slightly whiny and his growl has more of a metal vibe about it um i love the kind of upbeat solo that's just kind of thrown in and uh, even though it's, i think it's just a scale i don't even think it's a, not even a particularly a good solo um i think it's just a major scale um and then you've got you know that dirty riff um it's very simple uh, the drums add a lot as well, and it feels slightly tribal. Um, mm. Yeah, in a weird way um, mm. to me, anyway. Yeah, what do you think? 
Yeah, it's those drums. It's it's quite. I mean, it's a simple song, but it's quite unusual, isn't it? Um, that constant um, drum and guitar riff just repeating through the song. Yeah. Stop, start, jerky thing. I love it, and this is always like a classic. I always um, considered it to be, and probably at the time one of my favourites on the album. Mm-hmm. Looking back now, I think maybe it's a bit one-dimensional, um, but it's just a really good, fun song. And you know, they kept it in the set list for years and years to come, and it was always a, a, a highlight. I think. Yeah, and I think I was the same. It's I think definitely back then, this was one of my favourite songs off the album. I still do really like it. I don't know if I'd say that now, but um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more at the end. But yeah, um, it is an interesting song. I think the lyrics appealed to me at the time as well, because I hadn't really heard anything quite like that before. Yeah, same. This is the one of the things where I was just like, this is weird. Like, what what the hell is he talking about? Um, It's dark and disturbing, but it's also, you know, it's funny. Yeah, it is funny. Yeah, I mean it's it's um, it's to do with um, the Andy Griffith show. So all these are characters that's in the Andy Griffith show, which if people don't know, well, I don't know, I've never seen it, but um, is that very much you know white picket fence kind of our sharks America <laughs> kind of TV show that was on? So obviously having this kind of you know, this family friendly stuff juxtaposed against this horror film being played out. Um, about some guy going in for a shave and then basically getting orally raped and murdered. <laughs> um, and yeah, as you said, like the li- lines like, you know, PP pressed against my lips, that kind of childish nature to it is really, really creepy. Yeah. Like I die smothered in Aunt P's mouth. <laughs> There's something like really kind of disgusting and childish about it. Like, um, that I can imagine Kurt enjoying yeah. um, that kind of comic element to it. Kind of like puerile glee of a child actually. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I like the idea that, you know, instead of being shaved, he was shamed. Yeah. Um, it's good wordplay. Uh, and it's just a stupid song. I mean, I don't really know what else could be made from this. I was thinking, is it like a thing of, this is really reading into it, but like, is this a thing of like, is it toxic masculinity? Like maybe like you're going in for a shave because that's a manly thing to do. And he ends up instead feeling ashamed. I've just thought, I don't, I don't know. No, I think that's a fair point. Cause obviously yeah. that's, that was Kurt's like attitude and view of the world at the time. I imagine, yeah, he'd have found some irony in that. Yeah. Um, well, good. But yeah, it, it does feel like a kind of small town, hick like horror movie played out in front of your eyes and the song the fact that the songs the music itself is a little bit like as you said is a bit weird and like stop and start and it makes you feel a bit funny that mix of the lyrics yeah i think creates quite a cool song overall um and worth mentioning this is uh, of course dale crover on the drums oh right which is why they sound so great yeah <laughs> I'd love it if um, if one of the Chad versions had survived. I'd really like to hear. Yeah, it must be around somewhere. There's a lot I, of stuff I was reading about Jack and Dean, and he's like, oh, this this stuff was like taped over, and then it yeah. suddenly appeared out of nowhere, like 10 years later huh? or something. Um, so you never know. Maybe there's, maybe there's still something out there. Maybe. Maybe. You never know. You do. You never know. I've been amazed at what's come out over the last 10 years. So next song is About a Girl.
so this is obviously quite a change from everything else in the album. It's a it's like a poppy uh, love song or anti love song, depending how you see it. Um, so a lot of people consider this like the song that shows off uh, his songwriting sensibilities um, from the off. Uh, like Dave said, he thought it was like a, a Beatles album. I think Butch Vig said, uh, sorry, Beatles song. Butch Vig said the same same thing. Mm-hmm. It's very simple. His vocal melody um, and the way he sings it is what, you know, makes it really. Um, and it also, you know, it, I think it's worth mentioning as well that Chris is a really good bassist and he's so in line with Kurt, but his flourishes add so much and yet they they don't always tend to like stand out that much unless you're really like looking for it. Mm. And I think it's quite masterful, really. Um, and you can kind of hear that here a little bit in the um, in his playing. That's a really uh, nice point. I mean, generally he is unsung, isn't he? Really, yeah, very of course, much all so. of Nirvana's yeah. body of work. Yeah, and it's you know if you really want to listen to Nirvana songs from a different angle, if you just like focus on listening to the bass you'll hear like how how great like Chris is and like what he was doing that's complimenting the song and Kurt, what Kurt was doing in particular. Um, and yeah, I think for this song, it's that kind of tinge of melancholy is what kind of makes it for me anyway. Mm. Um, yeah, m- musically, what, what do you reckon? Um, I just think this is a fantastic song, um, whichever way you look at it. Mm-hmm. Um any i think it's an instant classic any artist could have written this song recorded it on any album it just so happens it was nirvana on this you know this this grunge late 80s sub pop seattle album um like you say it's very beatles-esque it's the first time that he's kind of um confident enough to just put out a really strong pop song um, yeah. and obviously that's a pivotal moment going forward in terms of the development of his songwriting and the Nirvana catalogue. Yeah, exactly. And I think lyrically as well, um, I mean, quite quite famously, uh, it's it was dedicated or whatever to Kurt's girlfriend at the time, Tracy, Tracy Miranda. He basically asked him, he said, oh, you write about, you write songs about all the different assets of your life and you've not even written a song about me. And so this was the song about her, about a girl. She's the girl in question. Um, but yeah, there's kind of like a melancholia to it. And I'm not really sure if it is a love song, to be honest. <laughs> you know, he says he needs an easy friend and all this, but he can't see her every night. <laughs> so yeah. there's like, and there's almost like a resentment kind of going on. Like, I'll take advantage whilst you hang me out to dry. Almost like, you know, you isolate me like that and I'm going to use that time to my advantage. Um, and it's mixed in with, the, you know, that, you know, I do think you fit this shoe, like a Cinderella reference romantic by its very nature but she yet she doesn't have a clue <laughs> so yeah. it's kind of like a double-edged double-edged sword in a way and also the fact that you know that repetition of i do is could be seen and maybe it's obvious um a reference to obviously getting married um but yeah things like you know waiting in line for a number hope she'll make time for him still maybe there's these little bits where it's like it's not this soppy love song there's actually like a little bit of you know, almost like anger, yeah, or resentment or yeah. something else to it. It's the uncertainty of someone who thinks they might be in love, but they're expressing some of their frustrations as well with the relationship and the whole situation. Yeah. That line that you picked out about, I can't see you every night for free. Apparently that was a direct reference to the fact that, cause she was paying all the rent in the house. 
Yeah. And she kind of said, you know, if you don't bring some money in, I'm going to kick you out. Yeah. Which is fair enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, apparently, uh, he was quite nervous about the thought of recording this and releasing it on this album. Um, but at the same time, I think he was quite committed to the idea of, of doing it as well. Yeah. So he needed a bit of support, I think. But um, like when he played it, apparently they all thought, like, this is great. And Jack and Dino was like, we have to do this song. And they were like, oh, we'll sub-pop like it. And it's like, who cares? <laughs> we need to do this album. Right. It's your album. You've got to put it on there. And um, I can only imagine sub-pop were thrilled. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? I also think, you know, not to get too deep into this, but like Tracy Marinder is like another like unsung hero of Nirvana. The fact that she basically, you know, as you were saying before, the fact he wasn't paying any rent, but also like he had tons of cats and animals and he didn't clean up after himself or after any of the animals. So she would do like a full day at work or whatever, then have to come back where he hasn't been doing anything or writing music or whatever. Um, and then have to clean up after him as well, which uh-huh. is really unfair. But like, and the fact that she was kind of, I think she's, she said herself, whatever, she felt like she was mothering him a little bit rather than being his girlfriend. Um, but you think, you know, he's quite this sweet um, woman who, you know, kind of helped him, supported him basically during this whole, during this whole thing. Um, yeah. She was like his benefactor really. Yeah. I mean, she hasn't... Said, have you um, seen her now? She was in, I think she was in Montage of Heck. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, and it's like, she's it's like, well, she's a big lady now, basically. But it's just like, she's clearly like still upset and still like loved him um, a lot. And there's always like, you know, whatever people say about Courtney, I mean, I'm not a Courtney fan or anything like that, but um, there's something like quite sweet that you feel like, uh, you know what I mean? Like yeah. with the whole Tracy thing. And it's, and, and now listening to that, listening to about a girl um in retrospect and also like seeing tracy like that and get upset and whatever you know kind of puts it don't know makes me feel a bit different Mm. with it in a in a good way but also in a sadder way yeah yeah that's true um Um, but thank you tracy because yeah if she hadn't supported him during this period then we may have never got him flourishing as a songwriter we may have never got this music Exactly. And there's loads of people out now, out there now, who are like pumping on people's sofas thinking they're going to be the next Kirk Cobain. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know. Where was my benefactor? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's all I needed someone to look after me. If I hadn't had to work at Mercer Human Resources in Croydon <laughs> when I came out of university. Who knows where you could have been? Exactly. Yeah. Unbelievable. Right. Unbelievable. If it any more Tracy's out there. <laughs> Could you hear the bell ringing? That's right, it's time for school.
we uh, we played this um, last year uh, in our in our band cells, um, and it's so simple. Like most of the stuff on this album, it's really simple but uh, very effective, and that's you know down to Kurt. Basically, it's a very simple riff. Um, it's, it's not even like it's a real song. It's weird. <laughs> it's a uh, it's got a cool like mini build up um, to the chorus some good drumming in there as well yeah it's got a big solo which i'm like eh, it's okay compared to the other solos that are in the um in the album which is one of the better ones i feel like um it's got that whole like quiet section yeah again that's kind of building up to the crescendo at the end and you, you can see why it's so powerful you know when it's with kurt screaming like that and the fact that the pace changes um you know there's a bit more variety kind of going on here uh and i like it it's just a fun song and it's a it's a little bit it's doing something a little bit different and it really just shows off kurt's cool voice i suppose damn true (laughs) i agree um (laughs) this is yeah that riff is like humongous that's an arena filling riff um it's one of the more I think it's one of the more fully rounded kind of like rock songs yeah. fully rounded and realised so it's an obvious like easy hook into the album I'm surprised yeah like Sub Pop didn't pick this as the one to push um, yeah. I really like the drums and again like actually learning them to perform the song um, gave me a new appreciation for that right. um, and I've heard people like say again in defence of Chad um, with Nevermind that you know a lot of those drum parts were um, already in place before Dave joined the Chad yeah. had come up with that and, well, Dave and again, says that as well Dave's vocal about that the fact that you know Chad had a lot to do with Nevermind more than people realise yeah I'm good he says that uh, Butch Fig's gone on record as well um, but yeah so this is a Chad song you know this isn't a hangover from any of the previous drummers and right. the, the patterns are quite cool and it's really yeah it's like a really good fun to just like bash through yeah I think it does show off um, Chad's drumming which is you know pretty good sometimes um, so lyrically it's it's all in there really it's about um, it's, well, it's about different things but the same kind of thing so it's about that high, kind of high school culture never really ends when you leave high school it bleeds into real life you know but this time there isn't a recess you don't get a break. This is it now. Um, you know, uh, won't you believe it? It's just my luck. So um, there's obviously an ignorance there of the real world that's being played up to in like a kind of mocking manner. You're in high school again. Um, yeah, it's like, yeah, this whole like continual loop um, of high school culture. And also apparently it's about the, the kind of sub-pop grunge scene as well, which he felt was super incestuous and it was like being in high school again for him um having these little cliques and all this stuff uh which is quite interesting and i can totally appreciate that with every scene everywhere yeah apparently um initially he was going to title this this seattle scene oh really yeah um but then again i think in a good move and this is kind of like what's quite cool about kind of kurt's um connection i suppose through his through his lyrics with his um, listeners is he kind of takes that idea and he just makes it a bit more expansive mm-hmm. so now it's kind of like it's about school and everyone knows you know 
what that feeling is. To school. Yeah. Um, whilst also, you know, still critiquing the Seattle scene, if you were aware of that, um, and obviously the music is reflective of, probably the most reflective of, it sounds like a sub-pop grunge song. Yeah. Um, I'm sure actually that probably then wasn't lost on some of his um, peers. Maybe that's why Sub Pop didn't like it as much as yeah. I um, think they should. Yeah. Yeah. If they, yeah, found out. <laughs> you can't really tell um, from that off. Yes, yeah, so this takes us to Love Buzz. Let me ask you can you feel my Love Buzz? <laughs> <laughs> fun bass line very big guitar sound it's very rocky it's catchy um and it's all like one build up really to that that scream and that fast guitar riff the little, little, little. Yeah. Uh, another big solo um but yeah this song's kind of more about the bass really than everything else uh and it gets a bit more noisy and experimental towards the end which is cool so it's this big fun song with like cool little riffs um and I think it still holds up today. Like I think it's it's arguably one of my favorite. Well, it's definitely one of my favorite songs on the album. It's arguably maybe for me maybe the best song on the album. Um, and I probably uh, I don't know. It depends how I feel. But I think because every time I listen to this song, it's still the one song that I'm always like, "Fuck, I really love this song." Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, every time I hear it. It's got a lot more energy than a lot of the other tracks, um, I think. And especially, like you said, that guitar work on, on this song, I really love. Yeah. Um, yeah, and probably, like, I don't know, it's more dynamic. It's got trajectory. Like you say, it kind of builds to this um, big payoff with all the scream and all the extra guitar whittling. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I kind of, like, I don't forget that it's a cover, but... It's such a part of their repertoire, and it's so different, you know, so mm. different. Um, yeah, it's just a great, great song, great recording. Yeah, and it's a very, it's very, it's much more up. Like a lot of the rest of the album is a bit more down, basically. Yeah. This is very much up, fun, loving, buzz <laughs> um, song. Um, so yeah, I mean, as we said earlier, it's a shocking blues song originally. Very simple lyrically. Can you feel my love buzz? It's pretty self-explanatory. It's just got. It's just a nice, nice imagery. Uh, it's the idea that he's saying to this woman, "You know, you're the queen of my heart, but please don't deceive me when I hurt you. Just ain't the way it seems." So, as in, it's more of a question, really. As in, this love is one-sided because it's quite a selfish love. Like if he hurts her, then she's misunderstood it. It's not his problem. Almost victim blaming. Um, not. I don't really know. I can't really. If I'm, you know, and this is me taking it literally which maybe you're not supposed to do anyway um but yeah i couldn't quite get my head around it uh yeah i don't know what do you think 
Um, I don't know. I've never really paid too much attention, and to a degree, I think part of the reason why they liked it is that it's kind of like a throwaway, bit of a throwaway pop love song. Yeah. Although, I mean, they were kind of like a bit of a psychedelic rock band. The story goes, I think they just like found this LP in a thrift store bin and thought it sounded cool. Liked yeah, it. Yeah, Chris did, I believe, and yeah, showed it to the others. Um. I, I don't know if there's any deeper reason for why they picked that particular song to play. Yeah, well, apparently he he jammed it out. They were just rehearsing whatever, and he just started playing it, and then Kurt joined in, and then all of a sudden... We've got a song. It's a, co- it's a cover, yeah, yeah. A f- official cover. It's interesting. Um, um, it's different here to the single. So it's the same recording. Yeah. Um, but obviously the single's got that um, little bit of sound collage, Kurt mm-hmm. sound collage at the beginning. Right. Um, so he came in when they were mixing down the single with a 30-second thing. And again, Sub Pop said, you know, you've got to cut it down. So he got a 10-second intro, and apparently he was angry about that as well. Right. Um, but, you know, it's that thing where it's like, get ready to do a twist, a something else, a wild what to see a frug or a swing in Halligalli. Yeah, I, I've <laughs> only heard it from the bootlegs or whatever um but yeah i can vaguely remember that um i prefer that it's not here on the album version but apparently that was because when they were (laughs) when they were mixing it um basically kurt forgot to bring the tape along right so when they'd done the single version yeah he like they you know they hit the reel and he also had the cassette set up at the same time and they made the master so yeah just forgot to bring the tape in (laughs) otherwise it would have been on there as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell b2b and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell b2b either that's why if you're a b2b marketer you should use linkedin ads linkedin has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience that's right over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Oh, what's that? Paper cuts? Let's have a listen. So paper cuts. That was paper cuts. Um, it feels like it's some shit metal song, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I don't really like Kurt singing here that much, and it's kind of a type of singing that he does, which he kind of does away with after a while. Anyway, um, it's just a boring song. Oh, this is blasphemy. Uh, well, let's <laughs> see. The guitar in the chorus is okay. I've put here, um, and then yeah, it goes into his like howling um as the music works its way up and then just having nirvana as a lyric is just weird in itself but whatever i feel like it's quite sluggish and kurt really tries to like make up for its sluggishness by basically using his voice to pushing his voice to the limit basically but um i just can't I just don't feel like there's anything there i'm just really like meh about it but you're gonna tell me you love it right yeah i'm not gonna pretend that you know when I was listening to this as a teenager, I was like, oh my God, I've got to get paper cuts on. Um, but it, it, it's, I think it adds another dimension to this album, definitely. It's a different kind of song. Um, I like how slow and laboured and leaden it is. Um, I love, I think this is possibly the best blood-curdling Kurt scream. Um, yeah. of any song there's a part where he makes that. a sound that is so pained and animalistic and horrible um, that it still makes me wince and this is after having heard this song probably Minutes. these songs I reckon I've probably heard them at least honestly probably heard them about a thousand times yeah I was thinking that <laughs> um, and also it was only earlier this year when I was listening to this album that I realised he's singing Nirvana. Oh, yeah, you remember you, te- you texted me about it, actually, didn't you? <laughs> Can you imagine how blown my mind was at that moment? <laughs> <laughs> what did you think he was singing? Could you, do you remember, or was it you just thinking it was a word? I thought he was just saying... Mm. Right, right. I thought it was just like, yeah, just pains, murmuring and mumbling. It's funny that because um, yeah, I, the only reason I really knew was because um, it was in the tab book that I mentioned. Uh, the as well. 
Nirvana. Nirvana. Um, it takes all the magic out, doesn't it? Having them actually written down in black and white, I think. No, no, it's horrible. Um, I liked as well, like for me, the, the lyrics of this were again, like quite interesting because I was like, yeah. this is it. This is the real, this is the dark stuff. Yeah, this the is horrible. Like this is about child abuse. Um, <laughs> well, it is. It's about it is, <laughs> um, I was, and uh, this is like, I was like, oh my God, Kirk Bain, he is a t- tortured soul because this is like, about his mother as well, his relationship with his mother, and um, yeah, it's just horrible. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's a weird one. Um, so if people don't know yet, it's we're in some like horrible basement where this poor kid is being kept prisoner, where he's just shitting and pissing on the floor essentially. Um, but it's based on a real thing that happened, isn't it? Apparently, yeah. Well, it's based on yeah. It's I've read different things, so like. Some people said it's based on um, that Kurt's was Kurt is the kid outside who can see the little kid in the basement or whatever. Um, that's one story I heard, which I don't think I'm pretty sure is not true. And what, the other one, hang on, they're saying that that actually happened. What? Or that's an interpretation of the song. Someone's well, saying that pre- Kurt, Kirk, infant Kirk Bain, <laughs> yeah, looked through the window and saw this happening. Yeah, as in he's, you know, like in the story of the song, it's like, I scratch the page of my nails and then I see some other kid looks just like me yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Like someone that, was like, oh, that's Kurt. He, like, Kurt saw some kid like scratching away at like oh, in the parents' no. basement. That's what I'm saying. It's that that's, that's something I read and was like, I really honestly don't think that's true. That would fuck you up for life. <laughs> stuff well obviously maybe it did then <laughs> maybe it had yeah. more effects um i think he just read the yeah, story in the paper yeah i think that's what it what it was um, <laughs> but yeah i did hear that it was yeah like a local uh news story about some kid um being locked up or something which um, he then again he took you know similarly he then took inspiration from another story to write polly yes true yes um but yeah, the the imagery here is is gross, and I wonder if it's also like an anti-authority thing with kids versus parents. Um, you know, I don't know. But again, there's this feeling of being trapped. He feels a maternal love for a woman. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's his mother. Mm. Perhaps it's someone that mothers him too much. Like we said, maybe that's Tracy. Don't know. And yeah, with the like, you know, him screaming, "I said so." It, it reminds me of like the classic parent excuse of like. Yeah, and it's like, well, why? Why should I do? Why should I do this? Because I said so. Like that kind of being screamed mm. at that pitch, as you said, it's really like Ugh, it makes you feel weird. Um, and then, yeah, if, let's take out the fact that the band um, is called Nirvana, um, and using it in the context of the song, it's almost like he's in this like heavenly bliss, maybe by like you know being down here, in I don't know. yeah. Um, and this, you know, this poor kid, yeah, so he scratches at some paint, he gets found, and uh, he's, and then at the end, it's like, so he's accepted some friends of ridicule. So is it like, is he in a madhouse? He's, and you know, the line, like, about his whole existence being for our entertainment, which is kind of true in how news stories push these um, incidents for entertainment, essentially, because they think people want to watch it. Um but yeah, it's a real horror story. And yeah, apparently, yeah, Kurt read a story about a kid 
like that in their hometown, something like that. And is this Dale Crover drumming again? Yeah, it is. Good yeah, it's Dale. a remix of the initial Dale demo. Dale demo. Imagine if that was your name. What a great name that would be. <laughs> um, um, I think, yeah, yeah. I, I think basically he, he knew the story. He took influ- um, influence from it and imagined himself in that situation. And then he's applied that to his feelings about his relationship with his with his mother unfortunately that's I think it is his mother right um, that's my impression oh, it's windy. all about how then degraded and trapped and stifled he feels oh dear she had a rough time um yeah it's an interesting weird song that um, you don't like but I don't particularly <laughs> like it's just like I'm a little bit like when it starts I'm like oh god I have to sit through this <laughs> But I appreciate, yeah, she said it's doing something a bit different. Um, next one, we're, we're kicking it now, aren't we, with Negative Creep. So let's have a listen to Negativo Creepo. <laughs> Is something, <laughs> um, yeah. So that riff, like, it's not even really a riff. It's something like if you gave someone a guitar who hadn't played guitar ever before, it's just sliding up and down the neck of the of the guitar. It's something that yeah, someone might actually be able to play if they've never played guitar before. It's quite, but that's what I kind of love about it. Again, it's simplicity, and it's kind of like an engine um, that's like you know revving up or something like that. Um, and then it's got this quite, it's very cool chorus riff and yeah, Kurt's really selling it as well. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of within the song, a lot of offbeats and changing of the pace and it ends on a fade out, which apparently scientifically is proven to be an earworm. It's hooked, hooked in your brain. If you fade a song out, apparently it's a little tip if you didn't know already. Um, and yeah, lyrically, it seems to be quite a horrible story of some creepy loser stoner preying on a young girl. Um, and yeah, I've had to like, I can't listen to it in, in the car anymore when it's because I've got kids, two girls, and hearing like daddy's little girl ain't a girl no more. It's not something you really want to sing you know, with them <laughs> with them around. Um, and yeah, the fact that it gets like more hectic as it goes along makes it feel like there's like a almost a weird violence to the song as well, like a crazed obsession to it. Um, and yeah, and there's a little tidbit as well. It's supposed to be a homage lyrically at least or whatever to Martani's sweet young thing. Ain't sweet no more. Um, or a rip, not off. a rip off. It's not a rip off. Apparently <laughs> it's not a rip off. Apparently it's a homage, a homage. So there. A homage fray. Rather than from my um, what do you think about it, Dan? Negative creep. It just you're, you're more of a positive creep, aren't you? Yeah, I'd <laughs> like to be proactive in my creeping. Yeah. <laughs> you do it with a smile. <laughs> um, it's funny, actually, because, yeah, reading my old books, some of the stuff, you know, was garbage, frankly. I think there was such a big um, rush for anything Kirk Bain or Nirvana related. 
And some of those books are really good, but some of them are like the cheapo ones that you get in like um, the works and things like that. Yeah. And one of them is like it just it just talks about this song in one one line, and it's like a disturbing insight into the mind of a paedophile. <laughs> just because it's got that line, um, I don't think that's what this song is about. <laughs> I think that's gross misinterpretation. Um, <laughs> is he talking? He's talking about Kurt. <laughs> it, that, this is a disturbing insight into the mind of a yeah, paedophile, yeah. Kurt Cobain, songwriter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, um, but this is—I mean, this is kind of self, another self-deprecating song. I think, isn't it? He's kind of singing about himself as like, I'm a negative, creepy guy. Yeah, exactly. Um, Some stoner fucking idiot. Um, um, but this, this again, it's like another highlight because it's just like whoa, high octane, loud, satisfying song. Um, one of my all-time favourite misheard lyrics as well. I'm an egg in a tree. I'm an egg in a tree. Yeah. Instead of negative creep. <laughs> oh God, I have to re-listen to I'm it. I'm an egg in a tree. Oh, I'm an egg in a tree. <laughs> That's quite funny, though. Um, Jesus. Yeah, good song. Yeah, it's a good song. Um, and they still played it live for a while afterwards as well. Yeah, this is one that lived on. Yeah. Um, so next up is Scoff. Let's have a listen to Scoff. Um, this is actually one of my favourites. I huh. feel like it's a, a better paper cut. <laughs> huh, I'm surprised to hear that. Uh, yeah, I think the riffs here are, are, are better, to be honest, and more interesting. Uh, what Kurt is doing is a bit more varied. Um, it's a weird chorus, and there's some cool uh, double pedal, maybe, drumming. Um, feels like mm. it's a dirty, rotten guitar. There's lots of floor tom. Another solo, but again, it's okay here. Um, kind of juxtaposes the tribal drumming and then joins it um, before going back into the verse. Um, and Yeah, I really like it. Yeah, I like it a lot more now than I did at the time. I think it just sort of, I don't know, it was a bit of a throwaway at the time. I never really took much notice of it, but now I think of it like it's pretty solid, like it's a rocker. Yeah. It's one of the more upbeat tracks. Um I think I think it suffers for the lyrics. I yeah. think if he developed it this one a bit more, it could have been really, really good. Yeah, I don't mind the lyrics. Actually, as in, you think they're what a little bit throwaway? Yeah, I, I think that that hook on the chorus of "Give me, give me back my alcohol." Yeah, it's not that compelling, especially like the way he sings it. Um, I remember talking to you about this probably back in like 1997, right. where I was like. You were like it's, it's alcohol, and obviously you were we were referring to your um, your bleach tab book. So oh, you right. had okay. the uh, <laughs> <laughs> you had the higher moral ground. <laughs> but I remember you saying it's alcohol, it's alcohol. I'm going, it's not. He's not singing alcohol. There's no hard C sound. It sounds like he's singing. Give me back my Albert Hall. 
Um, so yeah, but and then even then, like the lyrics are a bit. It, it really, I can see him dashing this one off on the night before. Yeah, I mean, if if we go, I mean, it's really simple. I mean, literally, it's in my eyes, I'm not lazy. In my face, it's not over. In your room, I'm not older. In your eyes, I'm not worth it. Give me back my alcohol. And I was like, so I don't, all right. So let's think about it, like intellectually. Um, <laughs> is it uh, is it like? this thing with like an, an abusive father. So yeah, I was thinking it could it be someone from like the dad's perspective. Um, it probably isn't, but is it a dad that thinks they're not lazy, that they're not old? Um, but you know, really it, what it's about is the kid being called lazy when he doesn't think he is maybe being shouted out in the face. It's not oh. over. No, it's not over. Um, you know, it's just kind of thing that parents say, I suppose, in, in films. Um, in his room, like his bedroom, he feels like he's a kid, maybe. Um, that in the dad's bedroom or whatever, he feels like he's a kid. In his dad's eyes, he's just not worth it. Almost like he's, you know, he's not even worth a beating, maybe. Mm. Um, and then heal a million, kill a million. Almost like these moments are, you know, what changes how you see the world like for the rest of your life. Um, are you a good person or a bad person? You know, how these incidents can frame how you see the world, heal a million or kill a million. That's me maybe reading way too much into it, but, um, yeah, I thought it was interesting. That is interesting. That's very deep reading. I hadn't thought about the song in that, uh, in that way before. Thinking about what you said, uh, how few lyrics there are actually in this song, um, makes me think of something I think again Jack and Dino said which is like you couldn't really you didn't really notice even though Kurt's like come in with scant lyrics um, and then ends up just like repeating them um, he adds so much versatility to his um, singing approaches and um, like you know he'll, he'll sing a, a, a same, the same line on the same part of the song but he'll sing it differently the next time mm-hmm. and it just brings that kind of um Ugh. brings a certain level of versatility and mm-hmm. um, it just stops you from realising that it's just the same lyrics throughout the yeah. whole song. Yeah. He had a knack for that. Yeah, okay, I can understand that. Um, yeah, so this is actually one of my um, the better songs on the album, I feel. Uh, so next up is Swap Meat. Oh, let's have a little no. let's have a little swap of those meats. this song i think it's got a bit of an interesting guitar riff i quite like the drum roll and the, and the chorus um again there's lots of little bits that are quite cool the vocal melody dancing on top of the other parts makes it interesting to listen to um and lyrically it's basically about swap meat <laughs> and just saying oh you know is it about swapping meat m-e-a-t sex dirty <laughs> sex um 
but yeah, it's also about a couple who are basically having relationship problems and they're not communicating about how they feel. Um, yeah, it's not anything to write home about, but I still feel like it's an okay track. Yeah, it's okay. Um, I think the most interesting thing about it is what you've just mentioned, <laughs> which is that, you know, originally he seemed to have the title as a play on meat. And that makes me think then about, you know, he did take that forward with Drain You. Yeah. Maybe the idea of like them, you know, the chewing each other's meat to the other. And, um, yeah, you know, it's about a relationship. He uses the swap meat um, scenario as a chance to do a bit of a character study. So in that way, it's it's different, you know, a different approach lyrically to anything else on the album, I think. Um, yeah. But for me, musically and lyrically, not all that interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so let's move on. <laughs> so this is <laughs> Mr. Moustache. Yes. And we're, not, we're not talking about Super Mario. Here we go. <laughs> oh i love that song um i love mr moustache as well um yeah and uh, i love the intro of the drums slowly fading in and just that fucking mad riff you know right at the beginning it's a fun song there's lots going on there's lots of stopping there's lots of little mini riffs in between um and i feel sorry for chris if anything because he's playing fast and constant <laughs> as well um it's a cool build-up cool screaming and then, you know, as it slows down, it's kind of like the rocky, grungy stuff that people were doing a lot in the 90s. Um, and for some reason, I think of bands like Ugly Kid Joe or whatever, um, when I hear that, the slower bits. Um, but, yeah, but by that point, Nirvana had already moved on, <laughs> songwriting-wise. Um, and it's got that classic Bleach thing of, like, going up and down scales uh, and a riff, you know, it kind of steps up and then it steps back down. Um, and it's just a cool song. And yeah, lyrically, yes, I eat cow. I'm not proud. It's a great line. Um, and yeah, someone, uh, maybe it's about someone basically in perhaps mock awe of someone who thinks that they're better than him. Um, and also the line, if I'm not mistaken, poop as hard as rock. <laughs> Could great be mistaken. Uh, what do you think of this one? I love it. I enjoy it for all the reasons that you've just explained. Um, I'm surprised it doesn't hold um, a higher a higher place in people's hearts in Nirvana's catalogue because mm. it's it's like crazy, it's raucous, it's really fun. Like you say that that guitar line, it feels really exciting. Um, there's actually a really cool live version of this from, um, so I can't remember, a tour in 89, somewhere in the UK. And I think um, Kurt's guitar cuts out. Right. And 
he's not singing as well I don't know what happens to him and it's just the bass and the drums and it feels like it's getting faster and faster and it's like a runaway train just that over and over and over and you're like they're not going to be able to keep it up and then at some point Chris kind of like jumps on the microphone and starts going ah, you know his voice is like quite weird it's really cool even like even as it's kind of like and actually yeah it, sometimes it feels like this song's going to fall apart and run away from itself um, yeah. and I like that um, yeah lyrics I was thinking about this because I thought initially I was just like oh, it's an obvious kind of like toxic masculinity kind of song it was just like you know Mr. Mustache is one of these like um, Aberdeen redneck guys with a big moustache and drinking beer and it's just like a angry song but I think it is that but then you've also got this um, yes I eat cow line which might be like now he's again it might be like Seattle like these snooty sniffy kind of Seattle guys looking down on him yeah yeah, I think you're right. I mean, he has to own it by being kind of like with his dry wit and self-effacing wit. Yeah, and I think there's that. Um, I say famous, not unless you're a Nirvana fan, but that little comic strip he did um, when he was younger with like the pregnant belly and the kid kicking him yeah. from inside the belly, or whatever. And that title of that comic strip, I believe, was Mister Mustache. Yes, he's like you know, you're going to be as serious as my mustache or something like that. Um, and yeah, it's a good, it's a goodie. I love it. It's a nice, fun song. And I think that's part of it is that, um, the bleach songs, as much as like the dirty, grungy, slower, whatever negative ones are like fine. It's these kind of like more uplifting, energetic ones where I'm kind of more engaged, Mm. engaged with, um, I think. Likewise. I wish they had kept this in their set. They should have yeah. kept this. I mean, I can see kind of why not. It's like, you know, especially when he's like trying to be like a bit more of a mature songwriter, he's like a bit like, you know, <laughs> it's a bit like almost like you're on a carnival or something, like, you know, roller coaster, a little bit rather than like, this is a deep, meaningful song. Song it's about Arby's mouth. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, it kind of stepped away from that when he was being taken a bit more seriously. But for that time, and, and especially that time in the finals, you know, the career, whatever, um, yeah, I think this song should have got a lot more, um, yeah, just played a lot more. And, you know, you could bleed it into, like, Nevermind days as well, I think. Um, so I'd have liked to have seen it moving into, yeah, into the 90s. Because yeah. even songs like Scoff and Sifting, I mean, they weren't in the set list, but there's, like, isolated um, sightings of those songs being played. Yeah, yeah, true. There's no Mr. Mustache. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, well, let's have a listen to Sifting. was sifting did anything sift inside you 
Hmm? Um, oh, you're asking me? I thought you were asking the listeners. Um, I'm, t- I'm talking to my penis. <laughs> Hold on. Give it a sec. <laughs> yeah, anything coming out of there? No. No, well, I can't no. see it for a start, so... <laughs> Um, so Sifting is, uh, it's an okay song. Um, I find it quite slow, boring. Um, the chorus is just a bit nothing. Again, Kurt's vocals really trying to give it a bit more interest, but, and it follows a very, you know, easy structure. The middle eight just slows everything down even further. And it's just a boring chorus. I mean, I can see why this, you know, never really got played that much. <laughs> afterwards um and lyrically there seems to be kind of a, a mischievous tone here like a devil on the shoulder almost tempting him into sin but he's like dismissed by his teacher and his preacher you know don't have nothing for you you <laughs> um it's <laughs> uh, feeling of uh, isolation and, and abandonment people giving up on him again it's kind of one of those things i feel like is kind of running throughout this album a little bit um yeah your eyes <laughs> uh, <laughs> he used like, to like that line a lot I remember. yeah i still do really it's just so <laughs> weird um yeah and it's i've I read you know always oh, the thing i like smoking pot because you get all that like, bloodshot and people going oh it's like the devil you know he's got devil eyes now and all this stuff but um yeah, I guess it's about a kid who's just like being shat on, basically. <laughs> Everyone around him. Yeah. I don't think there's much more depth to it than that. Um, yeah. It's kind of almost as slow as Paper Cuts, but without any of that, for me, like the emotional depth. It's just like... It's just sort of sifting along. <laughs> Literally. Can you imagine if this had closed the album? So weird. Don't have nothing for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's the uh, that's my favourite bit. That that um, lyrical hook. Um, and also, doesn't it like just end on a like like yeah? Just slows down. So yeah, if that was the end, you're like. I used to quite like the opening, so I figured out how to play it on the Casio keyboard. <laughs> there's quite a good uh, live versions well somewhere where i don't think they're really playing it but maybe like dave of all people decides to like pick up the beat yeah. and they're just like and then someone decides to do like a noise like a pig and they just go <laughs> and then it just ends <laughs> yeah yeah that's on like some early like yeah some weird like rehearsal room recorded thing I vaguely remember knowing what you're talking about. I think it's on the box set as well, actually. Uh, it's the best version of it out there, basically. Last <laughs> <laughs> like five seconds. Um, so yeah, we're moving on to uh, Big Cheese. Um, oh yeah. So actually, sorry, I was saying. Imagine if it ended. That does end the album. If you yeah. got the, um, the vinyl. vinyl yeah. uh, I forgot what I was doing there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be it. That would be it. Uh, yeah, but you, you say, well, thankfully you get some big cheese. Yeah, you get a big old cheese next. Let's have a listen to this slice of cheddar.
Derry Lee ain't. <laughs> what do you think about the grande, the grande cheesio? <laughs> Grande, grande Queso. Grande Queso. <laughs> Le Big Fromage. <laughs> yeah, what do, you, what do you reckon? Is it for you? Oh, it's great. I love it. Um, I think you can tell it's not from the rest of the like album sessions, in a mm. way. So obviously, yeah, it was, this was the B-side for Love Buzz. Um, it's much more of like a poppier vibe. Mm-hmm. Um it kind of it's a bit like more in the Mr. Moustache mould of a song that's got a bit more about it and a bit more a bit more sass yeah. um, apparently again another song like Kurt Cobain's only been well not even signed with Pop, Sub Pop but he's only just been like talking to them for a couple of months and he's already like really sick of them yeah. um, and this is an attack on I can't remember which one Poneman or Pallet yeah, I think you could go with either, really. Um, um, but again, he kind of relates it, like, with school into, like, it's a bit more expansive, that idea that, you know, everyone can relate to the idea there's some guy, like, who just thinks they're bigger than them, telling them what to do and pushing them around. Yeah, fuck that. Fuck the man. <laughs> um, yeah, I always thought it was a weird one to have as, like, a B-side to Love Buzz. I don't really know why. Um, because it, I think it's because it doesn't sound like nirvana that much i don't know i don't know what it is um i do quite like it but yeah i don't think it's like the best or the most accessible song on the album or anything like that but um yeah i think it's uh, a fairly standard good bleach era song um yeah it's a bit like um the lyrics are like a little bit inauthentic in a kind of funny mocking way um like rebellious but again in a fun mocking way um I really like the solo, actually. It's quite cool. It's a bit, it's like almost a bit Mexican-y. And I always think, um, I think of that because of Offspring's like Ixnay on the Hombre, which is potentially my favourite Offspring album. Um, yeah. I didn't think but, that was going to come up during this discussion. No, but it's that, got that kind of um, riffage, uh, just just that particular bit. Um, but yeah, it's uh, a fuck you to sub pop. Yeah. Um, it is cool, that solo, and as it comes back in, it's a really nice moment. Yeah, it is good. Um, but yeah, I'm not, you know, it's, uh, lyrically I'm not, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like, is, I'm a bit like, is it just like about picking on your boss and trying to get them up for a fight or something like that? It's like, yeah, I don't know. It's like, even if it's supposed to be about sub-pop or about or not, um, I'm like, it just falls a bit flat for me, lyrically. I don't think it's that. You know, it's, it's a bit like, uh, there's nothing behind it, feels like a little bit. Um, it yeah, does feel like a, one of those ones where he's grabbing at words, you know, yeah, words exactly. that rhyme and the stuff. I like, some, again, some of them, you know, Kurt had that knack for finding words that just resonated and sound interesting. Yeah. Though. Um, but I, I do like, you know, like, sheets, glue, how about you? Yeah, yeah. True. There's some cool stuff in there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, now we're going to listen to a bit of a downer, I'm afraid. It's downer. Which is sincerity. 
So that was down there. What do you think? <laughs> Is it for you? Um, terrible way to end this album. Just terrible. <laughs> it's just... Um, <laughs> I think it's a real throwaway and... Um, this came again, so this is like from the Dale demo tape. I think it's the, probably the worst song on that tape. Um, the songwriting just isn't developed at all, like musically or lyrically, and and you can I mean, you can tell. And it's an old old song. It's this is from Kurt's like earliest songwriting years. I think this is on the um, the um, what's it called? Illiteracy will prevail. Fecal matter tape. Yeah. So, I mean, it's cool that I like that he took it forward and it became a Nirvana song, but I think it should have stopped at that first demo stage, and I don't think it should have ever really been resurrected. Instead, it ends up here on the CD version of Bleach, and then it ends up on Incesticide. <laughs> yeah. So it's like the the most heard of Nirvana song. <laughs> Neglecting, you know, smells like Teen Spirit and everything that everyone actually knows. In my mind, this is the song that everyone's got downer. It's a good point, actually. I didn't think about it like that. Um, yeah, I, I actually don't mind it as a song. Um, I think it's because it feels like the whole song shouldn't really make sense. <laughs> it's like mm. it's like it's catching up with itself constantly, um, and it's got some weird hooks in it. Um, and I quite like the chorus, and I like the fact that it's a little whiny. Um, and but the, I guess lyrically, it's a bit throwaway. It's, it's sounds like it's supposed to be like slightly political um, when it's not really. And I think Kurt even said it was a bit like, uh, like it wasn't you know, it sounds political, but it's just not. And he was a bit embarrassed by it, I think, um, afterwards. Uh, and I know he likes the William S. Burroughs cut-up technique of like. Yeah, essentially, you know, if people don't know, like getting newspapers, sentences, whatever, books, cutting up the words and mixing them around and then putting mm. them together and see what comes up. Um, yeah, certainly was influenced by that. So it feels like maybe there's something to that here. It's quite nihilistic and maybe a little bit angry, uh, but I can't really get much out of it, much more out of it. I mean, stuff like, you know, thank you, dear God, for putting me on this earth. Feel, feel very privileged in debt for my thirst. I was like, yeah, it's quite an interesting line. And the fact that, you know, there's that anger towards God, um, you know. Yeah, it's cut, so there's sarcasm coming out again in a, in a sort of um, ironic humour. I quite like the, yeah, again, the line, like, you know, surrealistic fantasy, bad, boring, plain. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, and I like the idea, you know, that it's like ugh, all this stuff, it's all been done before. It's boring. Come on. Stay plain. Um, stay basic. Uh, the yeah, I don't know. So I don't, I don't really love the song, um, but I don't mind it as much as you do. Um, let's say, but uh, yeah, it's just I usually one. skip it. I could do without it. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so that's a bit of a, a negative note to end the uh, discussion on. <laughs> <laughs> but it's their fault for putting it as the last song. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah, true, true. Should have stuck to their guns and finished with blue. Yeah. And, you know, it did them um, fairly well, to be honest. Um, just to go in a little bit about how it was like, 
received. It didn't, it didn't chart, no surprise really, um, when it was released in June 15th, 1989. Um, but it was, it was generally quite well received by critics. Um, and yeah, especially like here in the UK, um, there seemed to be a bit more of a love for it and they did a very successful tour. Um, I say, you know, successful in terms of anything else that we've ever done, <laughs> setting out stadiums. But um, yeah, uh, over here. And uh, yeah, it was actually re-released um, by Geffen in 92 uh, because obviously Nevermind did so well. And actually Butch Fig, um, who produced Nevermind, hated Bleach. And it was actually about a girl, which um, is why he decided to take on Nevermind, apparently. Um but yeah, when it was re-released, it got it obviously got a bit more um, traction. It got to number eighty-nine on the Billboard charts, um, peaked at number thirty-three apparently on the UK album charts, thirty-four in Australia, and then yeah, and then yeah, there's been different releases. Are you going to go into the different releases, Dan? Oh yes. Okay, well we won't touch on that, about that too much. But um, so it's it's sold now. It's sold, I believe. I want to say over three million copies. Um, uh, which is good, pretty good, to be honest. You know, for such a for an album that was recorded for six hundred, six hundred dollars, and uh, I think it's still a Sub Pop's best-selling album to date. Um, uh-huh. And yeah, in April two thousand nineteen, it was ranked number thirteen on Rolling Stone's fifty greatest grunge albums. When NME reviewed it, um, they said the album was the biggest, baddest sound that Sub Pop have so far managed to unearth. So primitive, they managed to make label mates Martani sound like Genesis. Nirvana turned up the volume and spit and claw their way to the top of the musical garbage heap. And he gave it an 8 out of 10. Um, uh, Rolling Stone said that it was a moderate hit on college radio in the underground DIY circuit. So, you know, doesn't really give it that much. Um, And, yeah. Uh, So, generally speaking, it did pretty well critically, but obviously didn't, didn't sell that much. I think it did what it needed to do for them at that stage, didn't it? And yeah, you know, 40, obviously got 000, them the it, it got it got them the attention that they wanted, for, um, and it got Sub Pop the attention that they wanted. Yeah, um, I think it's funny and it's interesting. You know, people always think about how um, you know bands are you know, sell out, and you know, there's always a lot of talk about like Nevermind, and that was like Kurt sold out and made a pop album, or whatever people want to say. Which is rubbish, um, but obviously, you know, at this very early stage, he is compromising his songwriting, yeah. and he's very much writing and uh, creating an album um, for for the critics, for his peers, and for his label. And it was a calculated um, calculated effort, yeah, and it, it paid is. off. Yeah. Yeah, it sold yeah, 40,000 records in the end, which, you know, let's be honest, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and they did a um, big UK tour afterwards, European tour, I should say, uh, headlining alongside Tad. Um, Lame Fest. Tad? Hmm? Have you ever listened to Tad? Yeah, a little bit. Um, and actually, just recently, a friend of mine um, sent me a copy of their album. I can't mm-hmm. which one it is. Um, and I gave that a spin. They're, you know, they're pretty good, but that whole uh, grunge sound, I've never really been into it. Um, 
and that's why it always makes me a bit like not angry but I'm just like dismissive of people who are like grunge band Nirvana Mm. because basically as we've seen as we've discussed they just piggybacked on that for a while um, and really they just took advantage of it to a degree you know if Kurt had been coming up in a different time a different scene then he would have used whatever he needed I think to facilitate his band's success and whatever sound was required to get his songs recorded Um, which is kind of the point I was trying to make earlier about about a girl Um, but they were never really part of that I don't think and quite quickly obviously he progressed and moved his sound on and he continued to do that and he would have continued to do that which is why it's always like uh, yeah so tragic it's interesting yeah it's interesting um, other little bits about it the, the album's working title was apparently Too Many Humans and it was renamed Bleach <laughs> after Cobain found an AIDS prevention poster um, which was advising Harry and Alex to bleach their needles before use and it said Bleach Your Works so apparently that um, inspired that title and uh, yeah we talked about um, Everman earlier but uh, apparently he was never told that he actually um that he was fired from the group or whatever. Um, and that everyone actually said that later that he actually, he quit the group, but it just sounds like people ignored him until he <laughs> just stopped turning up. Um, and yeah, Kurt was a bit uh, annoyed that Sub Pop just didn't really promote and distribute it properly, which you can kind of understand because that's the whole point of a label. Um, and yeah, so the uh, cover work um, was by Tracy Miranda, who we've, we've spoken about during a concert at the Rico Muse Art Gallery in Olympia, Washington. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think it's quite cool. Uh, I don't, I do and I don't think it's cool. I think it's cool when I look back at it. At the time, I'd probably be like, this could be anything. <laughs> it just was yeah. a metal album cover. It, but yeah, very metal and all that hair and everything. It's actually quite off-putting, um, but definitely reflects the content. Yeah. Especially now as well, like, <laughs> you know how easy it is just to, like, um, flip an image, mm. like, invert it? So, like, that aspect of it isn't very impressive. Yeah. Um, they petitioned hard for that cover, though, apparently. Oh, really? Um, Sub Pop really wanted a series of photographs taken by Alice Wheeler. So, is Alice Wheeler also, she shot the um, Love Buzz right. photos. Yeah. And she was like like Charles Peterson. I think she was part of like the sub pop kind of um, entourage. Yeah, and basically she took these photos and of of all four of them mm. backstage under fluorescent lights, and they're really horrible pictures. Right, like all of them look really they're like overexposed. Really, they just look ugly. And well, apparently, I don't like sub the love pop. One either. That's kind of that's a bit different. That's kind of like a bit soft. Yeah, but I still don't like it. Soft and kind of fuzzy. These are overexposed, really in your face. And the guys, I can't remember which one. Probably, I think it was Poneman. I can't remember. Basically said like, you know, he wanted the kind of Nirvana that would fit this um, mold that he was marketing, basically. So I think he was thinking about bands like Tad, mm-hmm. where he's like, 
you know, and they looked down on the Fana and they were like, they're the Hicks from Aberdeen. Yeah. Um, so he was like, we've got these like really warts and all ugly guys, you know, and they're singing these songs about their real life and angry. And that's what he wanted. He wanted to put that out. And he even said, like, these are ugly, you know, Kurt Cobain's like a good looking guy. Yeah. And they're like, let's promote him as this like ugly <laughs> guy. And he's like, those photos made us look like mutants. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing they wanted to do was put a picture of Jason Everman on the back. And he's all like flailing <laughs> like around. An all this. Yeah. <laughs> 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 no, that would have been amazing. <laughs> Uh, just him because uh, he was the looker is it I think they just had a cool photo I think it's a Charles Peterson one probably don't quote me on that but it's not even that good a photo but it's got like all that energy of like of a gig um, and he's all sweaty and he's got all his long hair and the guitar so I suppose that's quite cool and yeah Kurt was like uh, petitioned again didn't want that on the back cover mm-hmm. Um, as a compromise, it ended up as a poster right. in some of the, I think, on the second pressing. Okay. So if you're a big big Nirvana fan, <laughs> you pull that out, it's just like a picture of Jason Everman, so who weird. probably at that point had joined Soundgarden. <laughs> like, what the fuck is this? So yeah, uh, tell us a bit more about, um, you know, other stuff that kind of um, fell off of the album other releases around it and and so on yeah so um obviously i spoke about the dale demo earlier the only track that from that session hasn't uh that hasn't been released is spank through um but obviously they then re-recorded it and that version was released um some leftovers from the love buzz um session which I suppose potentially they could have considered using here. Um, so well, it was blandest. Mm-hmm. Um, a song that apparently none of them really liked. Mm-hmm. Jack and Dino apparently encouraged them not to use it. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, Kurt just felt it was a bit weak. Didn't like the drums. Didn't didn't like his vocal that much. Um, and I think again, I think it was considered for incesticide and got vetoed. Right. Um, I really like it. I don't really know why Pete, why why they were so down on it. It's got quite it. a strange vocal. It does that kind of like wailing thing in the middle of it? You know. Yeah, I don't mind it, but yeah, like I'm not gonna cry about it. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't get a proper release. Um, then there are a few of these like early versions that got taped over so some of them before they taped over the reel they would double them down onto a cassette so they've survived through through that mean mm-hmm. mean um there's an instrumental version of sifting weird <laughs> so as if um as if the the album version isn't kind of uh bad enough you can seek out the instrumental um I think there's a there's a version of Blue that they recorded on the first day that's got slightly different uh, vocals and lyrics. Um, the only the, the only real big proper outtake is Big Long Now. Yeah. Um, so they felt they already had enough big, long, slow, plodding, ponderous songs. Um, I think leaving this off was a good decision. Yeah. 
it's okay. It's a song, but yeah. Um, and of course, we can all enjoy it now anyway, because uh, they got put on incesticide. I bought myself a copy of um, a recent reissue of Incesticide. Okay. That's been remastered um, really, really well, I must say. Um, so some um, two discs, so two a forty-five RPM, yeah, vinyl. Um, and I listen to Big Long now. It's a song that I've never really enjoyed, and I must say it's the best listening experience I've had of that song. And I did get into it, and it's very powerful. Okay. Um, Interesting. But yeah, you got to be in the in the right frame of mind for that song. Yeah. Um, the other few little bits and bobs so apparently Kurt claims that he did suggest to, again to Sub Pop um, a slightly weirder version of the album mm-hmm. um, and again this would have been like integrating more of his maybe avant-garde kind of um, tastes Yeah. so he did propose Beans to be on the album Jesus um, Christ Beans, beans, beans. Is it literally like that? Yeah. So he had a few around this time. Obviously, like his acoustic demos, and he was trying out weird stuff like that. So apparently, they said it sounded retarded, (laughs) (laughs) which it does. But that's the point of it. Yeah. Um, Disagree. um, And he mentioned some other demos that he would have included. So I can only imagine he's thinking about. Around that time, he did a version of Bambi Slaughter, mm-hmm. which again was an old fecal matter song. Um, and then there was Cracker and... No, Sad and Seed. On Outcesticide, there are three songs, Cracker, Sad and Seed, right. which are Polly, um, Misery Loves Company, mm-hmm. and Sappy. And they're really like low-key, depressing acoustic versions of those songs. Um, so they were floating around at this time as well, I think. Right. Um, so it would have been weird to imagine an album including those. And if you like look around, and like Kurt was very prolific, I think, at producing his own mixtapes of all this material and sending them to his friends. Right. So you'll see compilations, and it will have basically tracks from all of the Dale demo, Love Buzz sessions, Bleach sessions, and some of these like acoustic songs in there. Right. Um, and often topped with Montage of Heck. Jesus. Um, so I, 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 I'd quite like to, I'm going to spend some time, I think, because I've really got into this album this week, right. preparing. Yeah. I'm going to make a few of my own little personal could-have-been mixes. Um, I think it could have, you know, been a really weird out-there album. Yeah. It's interesting, actually. Um, Yeah, you should do. Let me know how you get on with that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So for people who uh, might have listened to Bleach and think, oh, I like the sound of some of this, or for people who were like, yeah, I like Nirvana's Bleach album better than any other album, but I just don't know what else to get. Um, (laughs) What what else would you uh, recommend listening to? Because I was going to say... A lot of that, I mean, yeah, we've kind of discussed it already a little bit, but um, that sub-pop sound at the time is basically the place to go. Um, yeah, like Mud Honey are probably the, the big ones. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyone else you'd recommend? I think Tad 
Um, but Mud Honey, Super Fuzz, Big Muff, um, and Early Soundgarden. But I got to say, you know, these aren't bands that I was ever really, really into. I think you know we both got into Nirvana, and rather than explore their contemporaries of that scene, I was much more interested in all the bands that Kurt was so good at name dropping. Um, and all of his sort of influences. Um, in that respect, I don't know, you might want to look at some of those bands that maybe influenced the general grunge sound, if people want to like go back to the 70s. Um, mm-hmm. Bands like Blue Cheer, mm-hmm. um, obviously Black Sabbath. Bit of Iggy Stooges, I suppose. Yeah, definitely the Stooges. I think, yeah, that's really it. I'd be interested to know what um, else is on that um, list of the best grunge albums. Yeah. Would you say this was ch- um, listed at number 15? Yeah, 15, I think. Um, so whatever the 14 albums are <laughs> to fit on that list, yeah, that's probably to. where people might want <clears throat> to... I'll tell you what they are now. How about that? Always, please. Uh, and this might be really boring for people, but I don't care. I'm going to accept the cookies. Tell you now. Um, number. F- All right, I'll do this really quickly, and you tell me if you've even heard of it. Mother Love Bone, Apple. Yes. Toadies, uh, Rubberneck. Forty. I've heard a band. I've never listened to any of their music. Oh, number forty-eight. Fecal matter. Illiteracy will prevail. Hang on, we're going from number fifty. Yes. Okay. That's number 48. 47, The You Men, Step on a Bug. Okay. 46, Veruca Salt, American Thighs. 45, mm. The Stooges, Fun House. Nice. 44, Skin Yard, Hallowed Ground. Jack and Dino's band. 43, Black Flag, My War. I mean, it's not really grunge. Is it? I suppose it's pro... That's a, well, that's the point. That is proto-grunge, so yeah. Yes. That's a good one. My War. Listen to it. Recommend it. <laughs> 42, Alice in Chains, Jar of Flies. Oh, you love some mm. Alice in Chains. <laughs> I've never, I've literally never heard an Alice in Chains song. It's not, you don't want to, it's not great. Oh, okay. um, Soundgarden, Screaming Life. Okay. Mud Honey, Every, boy could, every Good Boy Deserves Fudge. Yeah. Remember that one? It's a, a later album, I think. Yeah, 91. The Gits, Enter the Conquering Chicken. <laughs> Uh, don't know it. Don't know it. 38, The Fluid, Purple Metal Flake Music. Yeah, I've heard a bit of The Fluid. Uh, 37, okay. one of your favourites. L7, Smell the Magic. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> 36, you might, this might be out of the blue a little bit, depending on how you deem, deem crunch. Neil Young and the Crazy... Uh, Neil Young and Crazy Horse, Ragged Glory. The Godfather of Grunge, they used to call him, didn't they? They did, a while. yeah. Yeah. Um, 35 Poor, Dragline. Don't know them. Never heard of that name. 34 Seven Year Bitch, Fever Zapata. Huh. Maybe we should go through these. It's a whole <laughs> separate other, other thing. 33 Babes in Toyland, Fontanelle. 32 yeah. Smashing Pumpkins, Gish. Oh, no. I don't like Smashing Pumpkins. Oh. I, I, would, I would recommend, if you like Bleach, don't listen to Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> 31, Tad, 8-Way Santa. I love the, that title. Yeah. 30, Wipers, Youth of America. We talked about Wipers before, actually. That is so, great, actually. I know yeah. that album. 
That is really good. It's good. 29, Green River, come on down. I was reading about them the other day. Yeah, um, they're like, them and Mother Love Bone and Green River, I always kind of think they're like the the touchstone of the grunge scene, really, aren't they? Because then so many bands came out of them. Yeah, exactly. Um, 28, Soundgarden, Louder Than Love. 27, Babes in Toyland, Spanking Machine. Hmm. 26, Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Listen to that. Melvin's Bullhead. Oh, that is a great album. That's one of my favourite Melvin's albums. <laughs> 24, Stone Temple Pilots, Purple. No. 23, Soundgarden, Ultra Mega OK. What? Ultra Mega OK? Yeah. Wow, I haven't heard of that. 22, Various Artists, Deep Six. So whatever, just a combination, basically. But that's actually... Do you know what? I I thought I should recommend that, and then I forgot about it. Because that is really... I think it's from 1986. Yes, 1986. Again, that's Jack and Dino, Reciprocal Recordings. And that's some of the first stuff on vinyl for the Melvins. Mm -hmm. Um, I think... Maybe the U-Men... Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, and who else is on it? One of those, maybe Green River. Yes, also correct. So you've got all these really seminal. That is like the start. That is the building block of that whole scene. Is that album getting recorded and released? Yes. So that's what that's it says here as well. Quiet listening. <laughs> um, it's, uh, yeah, basically, it's like everybody in Deep Six has become famous, or there's a person in the band that's moved on in the industry. Interesting. 21. Jerry Cantrell, Degradation Trip. Never heard of it. He's the guy from uh, Alice in Chains or something? Oh, God. Maybe. That's probably why. Um, 20. Green River, Drivers of Bone. Okay. 19. Singles, the original motion picture soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. 18. Mad Season, Above. Never heard of him. They're mad, then. They're mad. It's always been a mad season. Um, <laughs> Sounds like something an octogenarian working in a laundrette would say. Yeah. Um, 17, Screaming Trees, Sweet Oblivion. Uh-huh. 16, oh, Melvin's Houdini. Yes. But I mean, better than that, better than that, Dan. 15, L7, Bricks Are Heavy. Oh, uh, no. Better than that, 14, Alice in Chains, Facelift. Better than that, Nirvana Bleach, number 13. Finally. There we go. Number 12, even better than Bleach, Smashing Pumpkins, Siamese Dream. <sighs> That's outrageous. It's not even a grunge album. Number 11. It's just alternative, it's just radio, alternative radio rock. Listen, this is Rolling Stone and they know music. <sighs> they don't. 11, Stone Temple Pilots, Core. Core. Number 10, Pearl Jam versus VS. I mean, I've always said versus, I don't actually know if it is. I assume it's versus. Number 9, Soundgarden, Super Unknown. No, this is right. This is a bullshit. This is bollocks. 8, Nirvana, In Utero. And Not guess what? We haven't, come across, we haven't come across Nevermind or anything yet. Oh, Number 7, Temple of the Dog. Temple of the Dog. Fair enough. Number six, Alice in Chains, Dirt. Whatever, okay. <laughs> Number five, Bart <laughs> Honey, Super Fuzz, Big Muff. 
Yes. Number four, Dan. Oh, number four. Hole, live through this, which I actually like as an album. Not number four, but... I, I quite like it. Because I don't Kurt think it should be on this it. list. <laughs> huh? Because it's a Kurt Cobain album. <laughs> yeah, essentially. Um, <laughs> number three, Dan. And this is one of my favourite covers of anything ever. Pearl okay. Jam, 10. <laughs> oh. They're all put with all doing a high five at the same time, basically. That's terrible. <laughs> so fucking That's stupid. Terrible. Even at the time, it was like, this is so fucking stupid. So it's, like, like, it's everything I'm, that Kurt's like against and whatever. I was going to say, like, that's just got, like, nothing, absolutely nothing to do with anything that, like, Nirvana were about or stood for. Certainly. Number two, Soundgarden, Bad Motorfinger. <sighs> Had that on CD for so long. And number one, Dan, what's number one? Well, I think you're going to say, never mind, and I'm going to feel very angry. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Well, get angry. <laughs> It's not it. a grunge album, and this is why we just heard a, like a, a roster of shit bands and acts, and Nirvana is like lumped in there as like the king of it all. Of a scene that they they didn't they didn't build the scene, they didn't engender it. They just there they rode the coattails of it for a little while, so they could get established and move on to better things. Um, and they always get saddled with like grunge, and grunge was very, you know, it's very specific sound, specific group of bands at specific time and place. But this was very much a watered-down grunge for the masses. Never mind. But I know it's well, when, in you, that it's when it becomes pop. just alternative rock, yeah, commercial alternative rock, which is. To my, well, to me, I prefer it, that sound, personally. Yeah. Well, you're right. But there we go. Rolling Stone um, says, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Rolling Stones has declared it... Rolling Stones, Rolling Stone, has declared <laughs> it the number one grunge album of all Those time. Those bloody Rolling Stones, what do they know? Um, so, Dan, tell us about, um, just, to, just to sum up now, all yeah. the different ways you can get bleach... <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, having a quick look at discogs.com, there are currently 273 known versions of Bleach logged in the database. Wow. Um, probably about half of those are um, counterfeit pressings. Mm -hmm. um, so we're still probably looking at like 150 versions at least. Um just going to mention a few key ones. Um, so I think the first pressing um, in America is probably one of the most desirable. Initially, it was only uh, only received a thousand copy pressing. Mm -hmm. So modest ambitions for this album. So one thousand pressed on white vinyl. If you've got a copy of that, you want to probably put it in a bank safe somewhere. Yeah. I do have a white vinyl press, but I don't think it's the original one. Yeah, there were a few um, white vinyl pressings in, I think, in the UK or Europe later on. Mm. Um, so that one, 
let's see, it's got an average selling price of £576, which isn't that much. If you want to come on Discogs today and buy a copy, the cheapest one is £1,558. Right. And the highest it's ever sold for is £2,000. Okay. So, um, start saving up your pennies. Yeah. Um, At the same time, over in Australia, the album was released by a tiny independent called Waterfront Records. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually released a series, I haven't counted how many, there seem to be about a dozen different colour variants. Um, and what's cool is it's not just the vinyl that's coloured, all the sleeves um, are coloured as well. Right. So there's like a one with a green sleeve and a green vinyl. Purple and it's kind of like silver. The Nirvana bleach is still silver. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are really rare because these came in editions of usually like about three to five hundred copies. Mm-hmm. No one's quite sure or clear. I don't think how many specifically there were of each color. Um, but if you ever see one of those, they're really beautiful. And there are quite a lot of counterfeits though out there. A few years ago, I think there was a big load of them put out into the market. So just um, watch out. Right. Um, in 1992, it got a remaster and reissue through Geffen. Um, so I think my copy, my CD copy, is the uh, Geffen version. Yeah. Um, but again, at the same time, we get a few interesting vinyl reissues. Again, over in Australia, 1992, Waterfront did a green tour edition to tie in with Nirvana's visit to the... Uh, country down under mm-hmm. um, and what's kind of like unique and different and cool about it is it comes in this weird cloth bag and it's got the tour dates printed on the back that's cool and it came also with a poster which is again it's this weird it's like green with Nirvana and bleach and silver um, so there are only 500 of those wow um, at the moment, if you want to buy one of those on Discogs, it's £900. Um, although the highest it's ever sold for is 574 So mm-hmm. maybe that guy's punching above his weight. It's cool, though. Um, it's really cool. The best one, for my money, is the 1992 Sub Pop reissue um, in the US on Splatter Vinyl. This thing is absolutely beautiful. Um, it comes on, it's like white and red splatter vinyl. Um, and it also comes with a copy of Sliver on blue vinyl. Right. Um, there were only 500 copies uh, numbered. And so this thing, yeah, it's highly desirable, very rare. Um, this usually goes for, let's see, between 800 to 1,200 pounds. Wow. <laughs> so if you were there, if you were a fan of the band in 1992, as they were just like getting huge, and maybe you hadn't bought a copy of Bleach, you just had it on a tape from a mate, and you saw this, thought, oh, yeah, I'll shell out, like, whatever, I don't know how much an album was at that point yeah, $15 or something <laughs> and you're sitting on this it's beautiful it looks like raspberry swirl ice cream oh really nice 
very cool. Um, I suppose then the only kind of like thing that's happened really since then with the album was the 20th anniversary reissue, mm-hmm. which was in, um, well, you could do the maths. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and what they did was they packaged it with a live show from 1990. Yeah. yeah. It's um, good. It's good because it's nice because, you know, we knew that they had some of this professionally recorded stuff in the vaults and it's just nice to see it you know there's an opportunity to put it out there um and it's a really good show and it's you know it's evolving into the um nevermind era mm. so there's songs like dive on there and um uh, molly's lips and actually that's the version that the um molly's lips seven inch single is taken from oh really Yep. Yeah. So it's uh, it was Pine Pine Street Theatre, nineteen ninety. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well worth getting just to hear, you know, have that show. It's good. It's a good show as well, and you can hear the energy and kind of rawness that still, you know, resonated throughout the entire career, really. Um, and Chad Chad drumming, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's no bad. Chad. <laughs> Give the guy a break and listen to him. Okay. Yeah, back off the chat. Yeah. Um, well, so that was a pretty long one. That was intense. <laughs> um, I mean, I suppose in, in closing, for me personally, um, I mean, overall, I do, I do like the album still, and I like its rawness, and I do like its kind of like metal tendencies, but. Um, I think for me, I always need a fair bit of time away before I come back to Bleach. Um, I think lyrically, it's a little bit too nonsensical for me. Um, it doesn't have the kind of messaging that, you know, well, even never mind, you know, had nor the kind of like abstract intelligence of a neutero. But mm-hmm. it's a strong first album still. And, um, you know, the music obviously after 30 years. Uh, for me still feels rather dated at some points but I think it would have felt dated after about six years that kind of specific um, grunge sound Um, and I think the songs they kept playing on tour are definitely kind of like the best of what they of what they had and you know I'd argue that the further they got into their career um, the better the songs actually sounded um, you know when they played them Um, yeah I think that's quite telling. Going back, I think um, like songs like "School" maybe didn't pop for me at the time, and it's through listening to like later live versions that I really came to love them. Um, to a degree, I think part of that is the drumming. I think mm. Dave Grohl added so much to those songs um, just through his energy. Yeah. Even though, as we said, like Chad probably came up with the patterns and things. Um, yeah, Dave took it to a new level. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah I think like you say it's very much of its time and place and era it sounds a bit dated to me I never really liked the kind of metallic aspect of the album um, but it's it's the launch pad really of everything that yeah. Kurt went on to produce later um, you've got all those kind of you know the themes are there it's all mapped out ready to go ready to kind of like explode mm-hmm. um, I do think you know it's a bit of a shame knowing what he had in his 
you know, up his sleeve. Yeah. Um, songs that he had in his back pocket. Like I said, I feel like there's like a whole pre-Bleach era, which is more weird and interesting. Um, but you get yeah, a taste it was it. what it was. Yeah. It did yeah. what they wanted it to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's good. Um, but yeah, I think uh, learn a lot. I mean, yeah, I've put I've put down here pastiche punk, <laughs> um, <laughs> which are kind of you know I think it sounded cool, but I do kind of get that it's like you know as we're saying before songs like Downer, which is supposed to be as if it was supposed to be like some kind of biting political statement or something, just falls flat. Whereas yeah. you know later on he's kind of you know he's he's trying to do something rather than just letting himself be himself as a songwriter, which we've kind of talked about already. Um, yeah, in that way, it's very much a first album and it's a yeah. songwriter finding his feet. I just I had an interesting quote here that I probably should have used earlier, um, but just thinking about that, you know, like you said, that sound, the sound of the album, which I you know, I think we're both agreeing, sounds a bit, a bit, bit dated now. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack and Dino said that the band's told me exactly what they wanted we were using some old rock records as a reference in terms of not wanting to get a big reverby sound they wanted a dry crunchy 70s rock sound for that record a la Thin Lizzy or ACDC I happened to have a copy of ACDC's for those about to rock on vinyl in the studio and there was a turntable and we would play that and go okay we've got some good guitar sounds here which is why that record Bleach is a crunchy, in-your-face, dry record. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, can't see that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's it, basically. Any other yeah. final thoughts, Dan? Just um, if you enjoyed listening to this and you feel inspired to kind of like explore the album a bit more, definitely queue up that alternative track listing that um, the band originally wanted and maybe play around with like throwing in yeah some of the songs of the era some of Kurt's weirder acoustic tape stuff because um, yeah it's a rich era and the, the album itself isn't quite representative of everything that was going on yeah yeah good point um, so Dan where can people find you um, on Instagram under the handle dreadful discs Cool. And yeah, you can contact us at newwinterpodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram at a new winter and Twitter at a new winter. Um, remember to go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash a new winter. And I think the next episode I'm going to do is actually a original short story, standalone short story, which I know everyone is looking forward to. Um, that's a good what's one. The, yeah. What's it going to be? Uh, it takes place genre it t- it's a, a horror which you know people might not be surprised about um kind of like an action horror thing that takes place in medieval times put it that way um and it's about a man who's having to like stand up to his sins and that's told through the act of horror <laughs> transcendental um, themes that we can all relate to exactly um and yeah it's good it was good fun to actually write and make and hopefully we'll be doing a lot more of those 
Um, so that should be the next episode. So do keep an eye out for that. But yeah, go to patreon.com slash new Um, you can show your support and a free way of showing your support is to review the podcast and on, on your podcast platform of choice, leave a little comment if you can and tell all your friends and your neighbors and your dog. Um, right. Thanks everyone. Uh, remember don't swallow beach. Just listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> So don't forget, guys, there's uh, an extra little <laughs> special bit um, coming up where you can hear me and Dan as kids playing some songs off Bleach. So shield your ears, go tell your mother to get out of the house because there's going to be a rain coming. A bleachy rain. <laughs> Here it is. See ya. Bye. Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges. 
wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon.